Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we have been remembering the uh, the eighteen eleven January eighth through eleventh or tenth uh, slave rebellion, the largest um, rebellion in the United States history, and in November of last year, November eighth through ninth, um, along River Road in the German uh, coast of Louisiana, Dred Scott, artist out of New York, um, staged a slave rebellion reenactment to commemorate this large resistance. And so I've got a little um, soundtrack from um, the slave rebellion reenactment that I'm going to play while we wait for our, our first guest to join us in the studio. And so um, just imagine um, hundreds of folks of African descent and indigenous people dressed in period costumes with armed with muskets and what do you call it, um, farming implements like like uh, cane knives and um, uh, other types of... Uh, rakes and shovels because they didn't have enough they didn't have a lot of um weapons but they were arming themselves with what was at hand to fight uh for their liberty against the uh the plantation owners and other other white folks that wanted to keep uh the system in place and and then there were other other people of african descent on horseback and there were flags and there were drumming drums and people were singing and uh it was just really 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 wonderful to um to participate in a reenactment of of this historic moment so i am going to play um uh one of one of the many soundtracks that i have <laughs> Oh, 
It's liberation game. It's liberation game. It's liberation game. Yo isn't so colloquial, but I, like I, we ain't they slaves. It's liberation day. Yo, we ain't the slaves. Yeah, we ain't the slaves. It's liberation day. We ain't the slaves. We ain't no slaves. Yeah. Yo, we ain't your slaves. We ain't no slaves. Your mama was a slave. <laughs> That was real cute, y'all. <laughs> wow. Well, we're we're honoring the um, eighteen eleven uh, insurrection in um, 
in Louisiana, um, the territory of Orleans, um, January 8th through 10th or 11th, um, 1811. And, uh, yeah, so I just wanted just to bring those ancestors into the studio with us uh, through that Slave Rebellion reenactment. And now we have in the studio our our special guest, um, uh, Pastor uh, Daniel Buford, uh, who is also um, a visual artist, and uh, he's got this great exhibit coming up all of February, right? That's right. Yeah, um, yeah, and so yeah, you're going to be at the um, um, the um, um, the color, uh, it'll be at the colors at the colors restaurant, which is operated by the uh, Ella Baker uh, Center for Human Rights. It's a newly opened uh, restaurant mm-hmm. and a newly uh, renovated building for uh, mm-hmm. Ella Baker. And one of the first uh, events they're going to be having in there in the new year, in the new decade. And I'm uh, very excited to be working with uh, Zach Norris and Maricela and the others on the staff there to uh, create a unique experience in the restaurant. Uh, the restaurant is a um, is a great idea, not just because people need to eat, but because in this particular <laughs> restaurant, uh, formerly incarcerated people are getting trained in fine culinary dining techniques and skills and professional things mm-hmm. that will equip them to become chefs, maitre d's, waiters, and uh not just some kind of McDonald's, Popeye's, chicken sandwich type of situation, but a fancy place where they can make some money, have a career as a chef. If they're cooks, they can see themselves as a chef, et cetera. And in this particular show uh, is a piece that um, uh, I uh, actually completed in 1992 um, that is uh, over 500 pounds. I'm six foot three. This thing is uh, as tall as I am or a little bit taller. And it's a cypress stump that was created at the San Bruno County Jail. Over 100 inmates worked uh, on this with me over a two-year period. And then um, then I had it um, taken home. Uh, I cut it down and uh, took it home to my studio. When I saw that the uh, jail officials weren't going to preserve it, I said, shoot, we put too much time into this daggone thing. And for them, they just let it rot out here. So it's been sitting at Allen Temple Baptist Church in Oakland for maybe about 20 years, and it's been at Stanford, it's been at shows in um, Berkeley and all over the place, and now it's going to be there at the Colors Restaurant in, you know, in that unique venue, which is a unique venue for a number of reasons. Uh, when I was telling a friend of mine from New York about my show, and, and I was trying to describe to her because she got off the BART, I said, well, you get off at the Fruitvale Station, and then you go right across the street from the Fruitvale Bart um, bus stop or the, or the Bart stop, and it's right there on the corner. And she said, Fruitvale? She said, that's where Oscar Grant got killed, isn't it? And so you see that, you know, <laughs> that, the, the, that the great work of uh, Ryan Coogler to bring attention to the Oscar Grant case locally is known, makes the Fruitvale Bart station known not by its location, but by the fact of what happened there historically with Oscar Grant. And uh, and I'm proud to have had a part in that struggle, you know, in terms of uh, speaking out on it within the first seven days before anybody really was speaking out on it. Uh, over 100 ministers uh, showed up uh, at the, um, <clears throat> the the district attorney, Tom Orloff's office, 
Geoffrey Smith Sr. just out of the hospital, and it was cold then. And um, a hundred of us uh, were out there on the steps demanding justice for Oscar Grant at the exact same time of his funeral. We went in and demanded that. Tom Orloff refused to um, to press charges against Tom Me- against Johannes Meserly, said he was going to wait for two weeks. And we went out into the media from that and told everybody that they weren't going to arrest this guy or charge him. And six hours later, Oakland was up in flames. So, you know, I, my history with Oakland is a deep one. I love the city. I love the area. Um, I've been here 33 years. Uh, I, I came here when I was 33. This is the beginning of a new year and a new decade. It's time to book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so you're going out uh, inaugurating this um, uh, Colors restaurant. Where Where is it located? Um, what's the address? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I don't have that address in my head. But look, this, if you know how to get around in Oakland, you can, you can catch the uh, – the, the the one that goes straight up International Boulevard and get off at the Fruitvale uh, stop, or you get off at the Fruitvale BART stop and walk right across the street. There's going to be the only restaurant there called Colors Restaurant across the street. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so talk about, you know, um, I, di- I didn't know that you, I, th- I knew you were a pastor, you know, mm-hmm. associate pastor at Allen Temple Baptist Church. Um, but I didn't know that you were also a, a sculptor, and it's like wow. And and so um, I'm looking at uh, this article you sent me, carving out dignity. Which, mm-hmm. That's a great um, that's a great title. And um, and in this particular work, that that, um, that appeared by the way in Christianity Today magazine, the same magazine that just castigated uh, the, the president and said that he should be removed from office. So even way back then, they um, they were they had their head screwed on right. At least as far as my art was concerned, I, I thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, it was saying in the article, you know, that each each year um, for Kwanzaa, you um, you create a new sculpted piece, and right. I don't know if that means that you have thirty three. You know, if you've been here thirty three years. Um, but the one I've got that's more. The- I've got. I've got way. I've got way more than that. I got more than that in my possession. I got more than that mm-hmm. just out in the universe <laughs> in that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. remember, one of the principles of Kwanzaa is to always do as much as we can to make the world a beautiful place, a, a more beautiful place than when we um, discovered it or when we came into it. And my mantra, uh, particularly since I, uh, I left my uh, active ministerial job at Allen Temple, is is to um, is to devote my life to bringing beauty into the world and let ugliness take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so I, you, you so I devoted my message right? my my messages to to the, to the art. Yeah. Matter of fact, I was an artist before I got into the ministry, and if I wanted to argue that case i would say that um i i was i was never not an artist and never not a minister but i knew about my art before i knew how to how to serve and so uh once i um answered the call into the ministry 
uh, God showed me that the that the art talent that I had and the spirituality that I had and the ancestry that I had, these were all intertwined, and that's what you see in my work. You see uh, a result of not uh, academic training because the only formal academic training that I had in art was at Withrow High School where I graduated in Cincinnati in 1971. So, but, you know, my informal training life, watching things, watching people, watching African art and, and wondering about it and knowing that I couldn't afford it, so I started carving it. Hmm. Wow, wow. And and I was looking, I think, don't you also um, paint as well? Um. Uh, yeah, I do. But not as much, and I draw, and I, you know, I do like mm-hmm. like any person that is, that is artistic. You're gonna do more than one thing, you, you know. Like there's there's musicians okay. that play more than one instrument, singers that sing and are instrumentalists, and artists are the same way, you know. Just like piano playing is the basis for music, all music, you know. Musicians, mm-hmm. you know, have to know the scales and the chords and the notes on the piano. So drawing is like drawing and painting for an artist is uh, like learning the piano and the scales of the piano. Cause if you can draw, then usually you can translate that into a, a three dimensional medium, like paper mache, wood, uh, metal, any of those things, but it has to be conceived first. And that's where the drawing comes in. Mm-hmm. But I don't, right. but even yeah. now, but even now, since I'm drawing on architecture, I mean, I'm sorry, ancestral, Archetypes mm. is what I'm trying to say. Uh, oh, I'm, not, really? I'm drawing on an, I'm drawing on ancestral memory. I'm drawing on dreams. See, so mm-hmm. and so when I look at a piece of wood where I am now in my life and my spirituality, I can look at a piece of wood and see the potential in it in terms of its shape, its texture, its color, and it's just a piece of wood that's in it just been cut off a tree or has been laying there in a fireplace or just laying in the woods or laying on the side of the road. Uh, but I can I can look into the wood and then I can see it in its finished state, much like a musician uh, can uh, compose a piece of music, not note by note, but see the entire composition and then write it all out. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's so. I'm amazing. trying to do this interview. I'm trying to get do this interview in a way that'll help creative people and people who might be creative and not really know that. And, and know how to get started with doing what they got to do. See, there's a reason why I kept my art life alive uh, it could, uh, in a parallel track to my uh, serving people and working in the ministry. And here's, here's mm-hmm. this, and I want young people really to think about this. Um, I don't have any college degrees, any, and I'm proud of that because the Lord has anointed my head uh, and my hands with, with talent and wisdom, and I've been able to share that. And every time I put myself in a position to share that, particularly when I wasn't getting paid, eventually I got paid. <laughs> but it was from the willingness to share my God-given talents and then to step out on faith. So when I first started carving, um, Kwanzaa became a um, – a goal each year to say, okay, well, I'm carving. Every year I'm going to do something different. So that pushed me to be creative, and that pushed me to keep my word too. And, and you know, and as a creative person, you have to be true to yourself, to thine own self be true, and then it must follow as night to day 
thou canst not be false to any man. That's what Polonius uh, was saying to his son in one of uh, uh, Shakespeare's plays, and it's still true. You got to be true to yourself, true to your, I mean, it says that in the song, lift every voice and sing, true to our God, true to our native land. You got to be true to yourself. And my art is a reflection of, of that. So if you are true to yourself in terms of the talents that God has gifted you with, you can't just put that stuff on the shelf just to pursue some damn career. Oh, I'm going to go get a career, make money. God didn't give you that talent. God gave you a talent to express a particular gift to the world. And you you might have a profession as an accountant, a teacher, and all of that, but that ain't the gift that God gave you to express to the world. If you're a singer, get your butt out there and start singing. If you're a writer, start writing, whether or not you published or not. You know, being published, being shown, being heard, that doesn't make you uh, the thing that you are. Being what you are makes you that. So I not only do art, I am art. I am artistic in every way that I can. So when it comes to ministry, I know that, first of all, when you work with people, you may never see the result of your work on an individual or group level. And it's very frustrating. And people need to see the results of their work. And this is why... If you've got a talent, you should do that in, a, it, in addition to the people work that you do because the talent that you have with your hands, you will be able to see a result from that. You'll be able to see the time and energy and love and uh, micromanaging that you put into that. People, you might not ever see that. Matter of fact, they might, uh, <laughs> they might turn on you and fire you for being that, that way because you care. And so... So your art ain't going to argue with you. You know, it, it, you know, if you put love into it, it'll love you back, and that'll show in the work. And I hope that people see that in the work that they come, because this is my last show uh, in California as a resident. If I was going to call it a show and give the show a name, which it doesn't really have a name other than my retirement party, um, it, I would say that it is my farewell to arms show, <laughs> because of all the struggles that I've been involved here in the Bay Area uh, over the last 33 years, I'm saying farewell to uh, to that struggle. And um, and a number of my pieces, for a number of reasons, don't have arms. So <laughs> so I was thinking about mm. that, but I said, no, I'm not going to call it that. It's just my retirement party. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So I was just um, thinking over, over these 33 years um, from this article, um, talks about some of the titles of some of your works um, that you were, you know, <clears throat> you know, creating during Kwanzaa. Um, one work is called "This Way Atlanta: A Fertility Sign mm-hmm. Post," and and that one there is um, uh, says a raw tribal image with one of a woman whose belly comprises dozens of smaller agonized faces, and and you want you you um, uh, this particular work calls attention to the 1981 murders of Atlanta children in black communities. And then you've got uh, Praetorian Crucifix, which um, it's, uh, stretches a biomuscular figure with severed and kneecapped limbs, um, a common form of torture in South Africa, so as to make the statement that the Roman uh, Praetorian guard whose task it was to crucify Jesus Christ, set the president for police in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. And um, and then um, 
and you write that this is the image of a figure in a lot of tension who isn't just surrendering to inhumane police. It shows a struggle, a tenuous existence. I think how... Think of how the funerals in South Africa became political rallies, and and I was just thinking about you know this being um, uh, the anniversary of the largest uh, slave insurrection in United States history. That the information has been suppressed in um, in New, in Louisiana, <clears throat> in the uh, German coast. That this you know sort of resonates thematically with that, and uh, and then you know the. The big, you know, five hundred pound sculpture titled "Inseparable." Um, all those, all those pieces that you just mentioned will be in the show. They're all those will be in oh, the show. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, nice. definitely. Yeah, nice, those those nice. will be on those will be in the show. Uh, in Colors Restaurant, um, the night of the show, uh, the the main pieces, what I would say, are my showstopper big pedestal pieces. Those will be down in Colors Restaurant. But um, the, for the remainder of the show, and even during that part of the show, people won't be going upstairs. But actually, if you go up and upstairs where the Ella Baker Center uh, offices are, uh, then uh, in their hallway, in their restorative justice um, area, and also in their main uh, office where their pool of workers uh, work, I have a few pieces up there on the uh, on the second floor too. So um so it's gonna be all over the building but the but for the purposes of the show and and particularly the uh the retirement party where the opening and uh, a lot of different people are, are gonna be coming through and giving their their well wishes, uh that'll 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 be on February the thirteenth at, at five o'clock at Colors Restaurant. Okay, February thirteenth at five? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Which sorry. is by the Fruitvale Bart station. And if you take one of the um, buses that go up International Boulevard, uh, you should be able to find it when you get off at Fruitvale and just go right across the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was looking for the address for folks, um, and uh, I I didn't know the Ella Baker Center moved. I thought it was over there by Kaiser still. I didn't know that yeah, it was. Yeah, um, they've they've moved into a better situation. You know, if your viewers want to find information on that, uh, what they can do is is they can um, go to YouTube, put in Daniel Buford Retirement Party, and about a, a minute, 30-second uh, promotional video, which uh, which shows the work, gives the address, and, you know, and has got uh, music that is a little fast for my taste, but, you know, uh, I didn't put it together because I don't know how, so I ain't going to complain. I love the video, uh, you know, and so because uh, it it just came out on uh, December 26th to mm-hmm. just a few people that know me and on my, uh, you know, mailing list or whatever, I sent it out to a few people on December 26th. It came out last Friday. There were 30 views on the on the video. This, yeah. this yes, week, very nice. This week there's mm-hmm. over 100. Mm-hmm. So right. so go to go to YouTube and um just search my name like you're looking for Barry White or Lou Rawls or somebody <laughs> but put Daniel Buford in there. <laughs> yeah, I'll um I'll I'll put a link to it um in the show um All right. so people can just, you know, find it a little easier. But I wanted to let everyone know that um the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights is located at fourteen nineteen thirty fourth Avenue, Suite two oh two. 
Um, That's right. It's on that, on that, right on that corner there, 34th and International. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Okay, super. Well, um, we are out of time. So um, I was thinking, why don't why don't we um, have you come back on the show on Dr. King's birthday on Wednesday, um, January fifteenth? I'd love to do that, and I'd be honored. And it's great to uh, talk to you again. And thank you for uh, covering uh, the show and my work. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you. And on that slave insurrection, you go, girl. You know the first Occupy Wall Street. Insurrection was done by the slaves who built Wall Street. Mm. That was the first <laughs> Wall Street protest. So I'll I just leave you with that, and I'll say God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, God bless you too. Have a good rest of the afternoon, rest of the day since this morning, and uh, yeah, right. look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye. All right, bye. Peace and blessings. Let's see. Ah, uh, uh, um, uh, Satana, is that you? Yes, yeah, that's me. Okay, cool. Alrighty, super. Because I see somebody else's number, and I'm like, who is this other person? Um, so it was just gonna be you, or is it you and um, and the uh, the director? Oh, I thought it was just me. Oh no, I mean, I, I think it's it. just I- you. I'm. I just wondered if you had, because there are two people in the studio, and I was just wondering. Okay, no problem. Um, (laughs) So I just want to let our audience know that, um, wow, I'm so excited. Uh, Emily Dickinson, in her own words, exclusive solo performance Mm -hmm. by Shitana Carell. Is it Mikan? Mishan. Mishan, America's leading theatrical interpreter of Emily. And it's... And it's a part of the Subterranean Shakespeare presentation. Um, old-fashioned, naughty, everything. A glimpse of Emily Dickinson based entirely on Emily's poems and letters starring our guest, Shaitana Karel Mikan or Michan? Michan. Michan, okay. Uh, directed by Andrea Adler and co-written by Andrea Adler and Shaitana uh, Karel Michan. And music by Dale Zola. And uh, Shakespearean actress uh, Shaitana, uh, America's leading theatrical interpreter of Emily Dickinson, will bring her solo performance of Emily, the most important American poet of the 19th century, for one night only to the Berkeley City Club on Saturday, tomorrow, January 11th at 7 p.m. And uh, let's see, let me scroll down here. Um <laughs> Let's see. Um, looking for your bio here. Let's see. Oh, here we are. Um, and AEA SAG AFTRA. AFTRA. Actors Equity Association and Screen Actors Guild. Those are, those are the unions. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Thank you. Member. American <laughs> <laughs> Federation of Radio and Television Artists. You you have an extensive theatrical resume You hold a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Dramatic Art From the University of California at Berkeley And you trained at the British American Drama Academy at Oxford In 1987 Uh, You toured throughout America as a member of the New Shakespeare Company of San Francisco Founded, directed, and produced by uh, Marguerite Roma and Clarence Uh 
Uh-huh. And Clarence Ricklips. Uh-huh. Is that right? Uh, playing yes, such roles it. as Ophelia in Hamlet, Hermia in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Miranda in The Tempest. And, folks, if you go to the play tomorrow, you will read all of this in the program, I'm sure. Oh, um, my gosh. <laughs> you still have a program. And, okay, thank you. Yeah. Mm. And then also um, you um, appeared with the Emeryville Shakespeare Company, later named Carol Shakes. I'm like, who would have known, right? As yes, uh, right. Tatiana in A Midsummer Night's Dream in John Hinkle Park. I remember going to those plays at John Hinkle Park. Really? Until the oh. until the neighbors said, it's too noisy. Move it uh-huh. out of here. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, it was uh-huh. nice. John Hinkle Park is a very nice yeah. park. Um, it is. And uh, you also appeared uh, with the Subterranean Shakespeare Company as uh, Marinia and Uncle Vanya, uh, Alonza, Queen of Naples in The Tempest, and Sarah in Mzabin, Memzabin by John. Memzabin. Oh, what a nice yes. name. Memzabin. Thanks by John O'Keefe. <laughs> uh, she is a founding member. You are a founding member and performer of Dan and, and Dale Zola's the Great Night of Rumi, and The Great Night of Soul Poetry. Ooh, sounds nice. You appeared as Anna in The Clean House with Island Stage Left in Friday Harbor, Washington, and I'll unlock some more stuff. But I want you to start talking about um oh, about Emily Dickinson. But I want us folks to know that the Berkeley City Club is located at 2315 Durant Avenue in Berkeley. And there's parking nearby, and you can get tickets at Brown Paper Tickets. Um, but again, uh, it's tomorrow, one night only, 7 p.m. So get your tickets. Or, <laughs> yeah. or at the door. Yeah. Or at the door. Okay, cool, cool. So tell us about Emily Dickinson and your one woman performance, solo performance, and your attraction to this, this wonderful, um, you know, sometimes misunderstood um, poet. That's right. And thank you so much for sending that article by Bell Hooks. It was mm. enchanting. And how Emily, ah. she talks about how Emily, Emily was renowned for how she crafted the circumstances of her life, which granted were very, very comfortable. However, she was what, I guess in, in today's, you know, today's terminology they would call a highly sensitive person. She was excruciatingly sensitive to vibrations, to um, to all the exquisiteness and, and the rumblings of, of nature. And she preferred her own company and the company of, of the divine, which she found with, within her. And mm. she, she often referred to... You know, her need for solitude. She was a devotee of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, who said, listen, if you're going to be an artist, you have to have time to yourself. That's just it. You can't go gadding about. And in her later years, she didn't see anybody. She, she would send down a, um, a poem or, um, you know, a bit of sherry or cake, coffee or something, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't see anybody. But when she was younger, she had quite um, a following. Of, de- of devoted friends, and she was happy and a good student. She had a beautiful voice. She loved music. She loved Shakespeare. They had a, had a Shakespeare society. She grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. Her father was a lawyer and a leading member of the community. And her mother, um, who she says, my mother didn't care for thought. 
she was very much the in, impeccable housewife. And and uh, Emily would hide when, when her mother and sister would get ready. They'd put their little caps on and get ready to clean house. She would hide under the covers. She'd say, I, I prefer pestilence. But she was a great baker. She said her father would eat, would eat no bread but hers. She had an extensive garden and a greenhouse. She grew gardenias and jasmine, even in the harsh New England weather. And her her poetry was, was her lifeline. She, in, in the play, I, I quote the letter that she first reads from the direct, the um, editor of the Atlantic Monthly, who was also a minister and also who led the first black uh, regiment in the Civil War. She was very much aware of what was going on and her, her parents' involvement with the anti-slavery movement. And she had a keen sense of social justice in, in her own heart. She believed firmly in inequality. She didn't go in. She she, she writes to her, um, her, her one of her mentors, um, Samuel Bowles, with whom she was very much, very, very, very much in love. And a lot of her her poetry are, you know, poignant, poignant letters to him. But he was married, had several children. He called her the, the um, Empress of Calvary because she likened her suffering, her suffering because of unrequited love, um, you know, to the, um, to the agony of Jesus. And she mentioned Jesus a lot in, in her poetry. Mm. It, she, she, um, she, didn't, she, she gave up, of course, she said, some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home. And she, you know, she disliked the hypocrisy of the day. She says maybe um, Eden ain't so lonely as New England used to be. And so she found comfort in her flowers and in nature and in her own mind. And she said the heart is the capital of the mind. The mind is a single state. The heart and the mind together make a single continent. One is the population, numerous enough. This ecstatic nation, seek, it is yourself. Mm. Wow, that's so beautiful. Thank you. She had a lot of, uh, she was um, covered in spirituality, even though she didn't have a um, a formal practice. Her connection every day, every day, to be alive is power. She said, and there, and now she's attracting a lot of ah, a lot of attention, you know, through the media um, that I think have capitalized on her without really getting to her essence. I, I will leave that alone. Everybody's, you know, entitled to their self-expression, um, but I believe her, her, uh, <laughs> you know, she's good at everybody. But she was, um, she was really um, acutely, acutely intelligent, and mm. and had a great heart. Mm. I could go on and on. So, would you? Why don't you ask me some questions? And thank you so much yeah. for having me on this show. I really, really appreciate it, Rhonda. I'm honored. Thank you. And oh, you're welcome. Sure I'm so happy that you, you know you had some time to join us this morning to talk about Emily Dickinson. Um, yeah, I was just wondering um, the period you know that that she was writing. Um, you know, did she have any peers, and if so, who were they? Um, you know, the whole idea of of you know of, of being sort of like a recluse, almost like she was in a monastery, like she made her her home into a monastery, but then. Her home was her paradise, but just the whole idea of 
of solitude and, um, you know, to be able to just sort of live her art, you know, as her practice, you know, it was pretty, pretty remarkable. And I was just thinking about, you know, Bell Hooks, you know, who, um, who writes, you know, a chapter in um, uh, in Remembered Rapture, you know, writer at work, Emily Dickinson, mm-hmm. The Power of Influence, you know, that when she discovered her, she called her Emily D., you know, when she was 10 years old, 10 years old, right? You know, a little black girl in the South. And yes, she called yes. her the angel of her solitary spirit. You know, like, yeah, it's like, wow. Yeah, and, you know, and so, yeah, it was just, and how, you know, she she just really, um, um, yeah, she really resonated. Um, she said, um, you know, the only... As a girl, the only information about Emily D. we learned in school was that she rarely came out of the house. Her mm-hmm. her solitude was presented to us as weird, as a mark of her strangeness. Uh, it was the space behind the poems that offered the insight that there was more to the solitude, something deeper. You know, I mean, could you imagine, you know, this this little girl, you know, sort of despite, you know, the slander. <laughs> <laughs> let the exactly. let the work speak to her. Mhm. Yeah. 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 That's that's so that's so beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. she. I think her life is an example to invite all of us to enter into the sanctuary of our own being. And she she crafted everything into and to transform your life into art and to treasure that life. She she was um, she had okay one of her dearest friends was Helen Hunt Jackson, who um, was a who was a poet and a novelist, who encouraged her to write and to share her work, and who went out, went out west. She went to Colorado and California, and she actually, I haven't read that. I want to read this book. It's called, uh, it's a novel called Ramona, and it's about the California Native Americans. And mm. she she knew her from when she was a girl. She had a friend who was actually her, her lifelong um, soul sister. Her name was Susan, who was born just um, just a few weeks after after she she was. They were very close in age. And she ended up marrying her brother. Oh dear, that, that's all other story. It turned out disastrously. But Susan, she adored Susan. She shared her poetry with her. And Susan, I, I looked up Susan on the internet, and Susan wrote poetry of mm. her own, which is, of course, totally eclipsed by Emily's poetry. But but I think a lot of it is very, very, very good. And she had a um, she had three children, and Emily was very close to them. And when the littlest boy died, she was overcome with grief. That's when she really took to her house, and and and, and didn't didn't go out. But Susan was a lifelong influence, and would critique her poems, and admired Emily, and would sing to her, and they would sing together. And she had she ah she said she had heard of I've heard of Walt Whitman. I I, I think he's disgraceful because you know, she was she was very modest. She she had a she had a sensibility of, of um, you know, nature and life and the reality of life and everything it entails. But she herself was very modest when she, uh, she had, she had, oh, that's another thing. She had a number of health problems, 
and her she wouldn't let the doctor look at her. She would pass from from one um, corner of the door to another in in fully clothed, and that was the extent of her physical examination. She um, she was very very what you would what what you would call private, but she did correspond with her, her childhood friends. She was um, she I'm sure she did meet. Ralph Waldo Emerson, because, who was really a mentor of his. He was a friend, actually, of her brother Austin's. And her, their father had a house built for Austin and Sue right right next door. She says, one sister have I in the house and one a hedge away. There's only one recorded, but both belong to me. And and so um, Emerson would, would come, and a lot of the, the dignitaries of the day would come and visit um, Austin Dickinson, who was again quite a figure in the in the community, she um, she loved the Brontes. She was an avid reader. She loved the Brontes. She loved Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, she she was she was keenly um, aware of what was being um, written in in her day. So she she had a lot of issues. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, Said, what does she say? My father brings home big books, but but tells us not to read them for fear they might joggle the mind. But when she discovered books, that was her whole world, you know. Mm. And uh, for yeah, important, really vital, intrinsic. Um, I, I would say she had a literary correspondence and with Higginson, who was who was quite the author himself. And he was the editor of the Atlantic Monthly. He never, he encouraged her, but it wasn't until after her death that he and Austin's mistress, Mabel Loomis Todd, laboriously typed up all Emily's poems. Her poems were in, were so, she sewed her poems into these little books, little booklets, mm. and it hid them in the, hid them in the drawers. And it was only later her sister found them and Susan had a lot of them, but there's her, her, maybe you know twelve of her poems were published all anonymously. And then after after she died, they discovered the, the one thousand seven hundred eighty nine poems that she had written. And they what? and and one thousand seven hundred eighty nine poems really? Yeah, I'm sure there were more than that. A lot of her letters contained um, poetry. A lot of her mm-hmm. letters. Wow. So, so, so she, so she, so she wasn't published much when she was alive. No. Hmm. So, what did There's her family great... think she was doing around the house? <laughs> oh, honey, she, she was. <clears throat> she, she baked. She washed dishes. She says some. What does she say, Lou? She says some. You know, um, when nobody sees, I, I, I wipe away big tears with the corner of my apron, and then. And then go working on, you know. I mean, she she did housework. She didn't like it, but but you know, God saved me from what what they call households, except of course for those of faith, you know. I mean, she um, but she did. It was her. That was what, what women did then, and so she was she was a good girl. She was uh, the angel in the house, as as one author wrote. She um, in her obituary, Susan wrote that she. 
Um, she was more known for her gardens. To, well, she knew her chemistries. She had a he, he, her her father built her a greenhouse, so she gardened a lot. She baked, she cooked, she sewed, um, and she looked at you know she she looked after the house. She looked after her ailing mother. She was very. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did she find time to to write poetry? There's a book that came out called The Gorgeous Nothings, <laughs> which has fragments of her poetry written on backs of recipes on um, the fragments of envelopes that she put in her, her uh, pocket of her apron. So she found time to, to write uh, amidst all of her household duties and her love. She would garden at midnight. She would go out. She just, she just loved her flowers. Mm. And, and her yeah. flowers became a metaphor for her poetry. Where I am not mm. afraid to go and you can find my flower, she says, you know. And she and her, she entertained and up until the time when she didn't. The, um, her grandfather founded Amherst College, and the and since her, her father was the president of it, and her her um, brother was the treasurer, they had these big commencement um, celebrations on the lawn of their home. You know, when she was there mm-hmm. to entertain, she went she went to watch. Her her father became. Um, he was he served one term as, as a representative in, in Congress, and she went to Washington D.C. and 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 notes were were made that she was very, very vivacious. So at one time she she carried on a normal life, but she 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 wrote, you know, she did write her brother. Well, I'm being very I'm I'm writing poems. Isn't poetical? What young ladies aspire to be <laughs> these days? I'm writing a few poems of my own, you know. So she she didn't hide it. From her family that she wrote mm-hmm. poetry, um, mm-hmm. but they they just they just did not pay all that much attention. Although her sister said later, Emily's job. She said em- Emily had to think. I mean, they respected. You know, they 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 knew that that they had something very very special in in their midst, and they they didn't know mm-hmm. quite what to make of it. Her her father was very 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 protective of her. You know, even turning down. You know, she had suitors. She, she she never did marry you know father you know nobody was good enough one of those kind of situations mm-hmm. um, but she 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 did carry on what you would call an, um, a very you know very normal life she went she shopped for things at the store she and she brought she bought dry goods and you know other items yeah I mean she she wasn't yeah. a total wreck as as is uh, so often depicted yeah. Hmm. Wow, that's really, wow, that's really interesting. Um, you know, sort of the life that, um, that she chose, because it seems like this was definitely a choice. Um, the kind of life that she led. Um, how how long did she live? Did she live a long life? She died when excuse me. She was fifty five. She was born in eighteen thirty. Mm-hmm. Died in eighteen uh, on December tenth, and she uh, passed away in. Ah, May, May fifteenth, I think of um of eighteen eighty six. So she died before her fifty sixth birthday. She was fifty five. And um yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. So um so I think I heard you say that she had she had a sister, she had a brother. Was she the youngest child? Um, she was in the middle. Her first her brother, then her and then and then Vinny. Okay. She's in the middle. 
Mm-hmm. And she had a lot of cousins. Yeah. She she had extensive correspondence with her with her cousins and her uncles and aunts. I mean, she mm-hmm. that was. I mean, she 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 wrote more than far more than many people write write today. You know, even with her email, she wrote extensive letters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Extensive, yes. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we we spoke a little bit yesterday. Um, uh, we we talked about you know some of the poetry that didn't make it in, into the play, and I was thinking um, we have a few more minutes before um, before um, uh, our our conversation concludes, and I was wondering, would you like to share um, some of the poetry or a poem um, that didn't sure. make it? <laughs> um, there's there's one called um, <clears throat> she never titled her poem. She said oh, really? the first lines of the uh huh uh huh. So I would say, okay, the bird, her punctual music brings, and lays it in its place. Its place is in the human heart, and in the heavenly grace. What respite from her thrilling toil did beauty ever take? But work might be electric rest. Those that magic make. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, would you say that um, Emily Dickinson or Emily D is is a, a muse for you? Totally. I mean, her words return not. She writes this in a, in a letter to her cousin. Um, she says, "We we turn not older with years, but newer every day." And when I when I read that, that's it. That's my <laughs> mantra. One of them. That's, <laughs> we turn newer. Nothing is aging gracefully. Stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> n- none of this grown stuff for me. I don't think so. Uh uh-uh. uh. Uh, and and she um, the, the way she she depicts her um, you know her sorrow and 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 her joy take take all away from me but leave me ecstasy she says and I am richer than than all my fellow men and she you know she she really got to the heart of what it meant you know, to really be alive to things and to really be present. Bell Hooks talks about that being in the, the present moment and this, mm-hmm. the, how to connect the, the divine within is just to, and, and that's there, you know, she presages a lot of the, the, you know, new age spirituality and so, you know, be here now and um, point of power is the present moment. She was always in the present. So in that respect, and, and many times, you know, I would say, okay, well, what, 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 what can we do? But Emily do now, and and I, as you know, and 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 her um, appreciation of the of the world around her, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm going with the, you know, riding in the back seat of a taxi, just looking out at the at the at the water and the sky and the the pearlescent city, you know, going over the Golden Gate Bridge and having these Emily moments of totally into the scintillating water and the and 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 the light, you know, the lum the luminosity. How light played, and that's that's what Bell Hooks talks about too—the light, you know, 
um, and she went into her apartment and um, is present in your own heart. And so, mm-hmm. so Emily, yes, I would definitely say she's she's been, she's she's been a, a a muse for me for a long time. Um, how? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to let the audience know again that we're speaking to um, uh, Shitana Karel Michon. Yes, did Thank I say you. it right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> and and we're talking about her her um uh performance tomorrow um uh, uh old fashioned naughty everything a glimpse of Emily Dickinson based entirely on Emily's poems and letters and uh directed by Andrea Adler who is also a co-writer and with music by Dale Zola and again it's at the Berkeley City Club uh, January 11th, tomorrow, 7 p.m., and the Berkeley City Club is located at, I've got to scroll down, um, 2315 Durant Avenue, and uh, there's lots of parking nearby, and you can get tickets at Brown Paper Tickets, and you can also get tickets at the door. Um, I was wondering, I'm waiting for my other guests to join, so I've got uh, like another minute or so. Okay. And I was wondering okay. if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of how, how this work how you, you know, work with, um, you know, your director and co-writer, uh, Andrea Adler. Um, how did you all pull this all together? And, yeah, <laughs> and and then you also have, I presume, is this music, original music by Del Zola? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's, mm. the same, it's um, my same friend who does The Great Night of Rumi. She's an amazing, com- oh. I, would, I would check out Dale, Dale Dan Zola, uh, I think, it, it, her website. If you look it up, she has she has recordings mm-hmm. of her other songs. She's a wonderful mm-hmm. musician, and uh, she teaches voice, and and composer, and she set many other poets to music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, and she yeah her yes her little girl's my goddaughter. I'm very proud of her. So she. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, she's getting her PhD. I, oh gosh, it's Stanford. She went to the Waldorf School, and I met her when she was three. And read her Russian oh fairy tales, and that's that's where Bell Hooks went to Stanford. I read. That's um, right. You know, so she's following, and and she's very much interested in the history of of of, of, of women, the, the unsung history of women. That's what she's. You know, um, her name is Carolyn Zola. So uh, I would say yes, just just to talk about her a little bit, and, and she's also been my, you know, my inspiration. They've been they've been tremendously, tremendously supportive. But Andrea is amazing. Um, we met actually on December tenth. We um, at uh, at a friend's house on on Emily Dickinson's birthday, just December tenth. And and mm-hmm. the friend said, oh, you know, she 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 told Andrea that I, you know, had been working on a play about Emily Dickinson, and and Andrea jumped right in. She said, oh, I love Emily Dickinson, and and I and she was an also an actress and director, and and she has a book called Pushing Upward, um, which is a novel about how um, an Asian girl uses the I Ching as a as a GPS, and it's it's really good, and she's a um, a, co- a life coach. And so she's been very, very helpful. And together we put it kind of magically 
also, you know, came through, there was an element of, um, of divine intervention, I, I would, I would say, in how to put the poems together. So they made, they, how so they made a story. And, you know, we, and we had, we had a lot, we had some disagreement. No, I want all of this poem. I want all of the, no, 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 you can just have this part. Oh, okay. All right. Here's the director. And, and all, yeah, a, lot, a lot of surrender, but, but she's, she, and she has been tremendously supportive. And we met met through the city yoga um, community. And, oh, and this is what, and it's interesting. We have a mutual teacher, Guru Mai Chivuasananda. And on January 11th, there's a book called Resonate with Stillness and has readings for every day. And for the day tomorrow, Mm -hmm. the play, she says, she could be quoting Emily. She says, for the experience of the great energy, the great self, you must turn your gaze inward. That which you are looking for is beckoning to you from within. Whose book is that? that it's a, it's a, a book of compilations of um, Baba Muktananda and Guru Mai, his, his successor, Guru Mai Chidvalasananda. And so that's how we, we met. Um, Andrea and I met through that, mm-hmm. through that um, ashram, yeah, in Oakland. Mm-hmm. So that's wow. that's how we met. So we have that commonality that has mm-hmm. sustained us, I, I would say. And um, and yeah, oh, and Andrea's directed many things. She's you know she's been on Broadway, so she knows her. She knows what she's talking about, and she's been <laughs> a, a great, you know. So she's been a um, you know a great guide. Right. And yeah. Collecting your poems. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, my my next guest, uh, Stacy Hoffman, is in the studio to talk about "In the Name of Love" uh, celebration oh, love of it. Dr. King. Yeah. Oh, so, do you have a website? You know what? I'm not sure. I think it's Chaitanya. I'm not sure. I. You know, this is. This is the Chaitan the Carol, Chaitan the Carol Mashan. I think if you if you Google me, you can you can find me. I think there is a website okay. that uh, <laughs> that shares. I'll that put I'm a link. So, okay, put <laughs> no a link problem. with something. I, I'm so sorry. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I don't do that often. <laughs> my inner Emily says, ah. But thank you so very 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 much. I, and oh, bless you. It's really lovely reading about you, and yeah, and love. And Emily says that love is is all there is, is all we know of love. Mm, wow, that's so beautiful. Sort of on the eve of Dr. King's um, birthday, you know, and, and yes. the oh, celebration, you know, of the holiday on the twentieth, his birthday on the fifteenth. Wow, that is really beautiful. Um, Thank yeah, you. about love. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have a good good rest of the day, and look forward to seeing you tomorrow. I definitely want want to have that experience as a part of my beginning of this year. Oh, that's you. wonderful! I so look forward to your coming. Thank you so much. God bless you. Oh, you're Thank quite you welcome. There. God bless you too. You take care. You're right. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. Good morning, Stacy. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Wanda. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Congratulations on which uh which one is this? Uh <laughs> in the name of love. 18. I know. It's the no, 18 are you serious? Eighteen? I 
and oh serious. God. Yes. Wow. Uh, 18. A lot of, wow, wow legally an adult, right? <laughs> I can, you know. <laughs> wow, 18th annual musical tribute honoring Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King yes. Jr. Wow, that is so amazing. It's going to be on the 19th of this month, which is next Sunday, right? <laughs> yeah, it's coming up next Sunday. Yeah, at the Scottish Rite Center um, in Oakland. It's going to be so awesome. And the theme is a change is going to come. You have such great themes. <laughs> yeah, we're doing uh, the music of Sam Cooke this year. And oh, for real? real? Oh, nice. Yes, well, you know, a change is going to come with his tune. Yes, it's the music of Sam Cooke. And mm. we are very excited to have some outstanding vocalists performing uh, various compositions that Sam Cooke either, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that he recorded and he performed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're here to tell you all about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, so tell us about some of these artists, because I, I see some are, you know, artists that you've had before, but some of them, like, like Tiffany Austin, I think, um, she's been a part of the program in the past, hasn't she? Or am I just imagining yeah, she's it? The, yes, she's the only one that's actually performed on the show before, but we have five mm-hmm. outstanding vocalists, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Tiffany Austin, Tony Lindsay, Cliff Payne, Raz Kennedy, and Tammy Brown, uh, five just incredible artists. And the backup band is Frank Martin on piano, Troy Lampkins on the bass, Ruthie Price on the drums and Shelly Doty on guitar. So that's gonna be uh, so hot. Shelly Doty on guitar, like what? (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, it's really uh, fun for me to pull from various segments of the community and Mm. and put people together who wouldn't necessarily be on the stage at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I I enjoy doing that quite a bit. Uh, They are exposed to one another. They are able to collectively um, do something really magical together. So mm. it's it's going to be great. And then also on the show, we always open up with the Living Jazz Children's Project, which mm-hmm. is a free in-school music education program that Living Jazz, the organization that I run, provides for Oakland Public Elementary Schools, Title I schools, the low-income schools in Oakland, and we will have 300 second and third graders open up the show, which is just so heartwarming and adorable and fantastic. And they are followed by the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, which is also a tradition Mm -hmm. on this show. And the theme set, A Change is Going to Come, the music of Sam Cooke will be the second half of the evening. So just a just a very all-around eclectic and inspiring uh, musical experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Dana King is your mistress of ceremonies, and Congresswoman Barbara Lee is going to present the Oakland Citizen Humanitarian Award. Uh, tell us about your yeah. awardee this year. This year, we are uh, showcasing a woman named Clarissa Dewart, who 
is in charge and started an organization called Parent Voices Oakland. Um, this is a uh, an organization that she created in response to the need of affordable childcare. Uh, she had a young child, I believe three years old at the time, where she had lost her childcare and could not afford to go to work. And oh, wow. as we all know, if you're a parent, that uh, trying to raise a child while working uh, requires that you have someplace to put your child in a safe and secure and wonderful setting that's affordable. And that was a real challenge at the time for her. And she went on to create this wonderful organization that is really addressing those needs in Oakland. So we are really proud to have her there and to showcase her efforts and the change that she's been able to make for so many women. Uh, And just, of course, very honored to have Congresswoman Barbara Lee come out and represent this for us and grace us with her presence um, and provide this award, do the presentation for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always always great when when she's in town and and she can – you know, participate in your program. It's always, you know, really lovely um, when when she's there, when she's here, and, and she's been here more than she hasn't, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Yeah, I just adore mm-hmm. her. I'm so honored that she's our congresswoman, and she's really standing mm-hmm. up for us these days. So, as she always does. Yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. she's an amazing right. person. Yeah, and, and it's so lovely, you know, she just got married. She's a newlywed. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. It's like months. It's not a lot of months. <laughs> wow. There must be a story behind that one, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think her, her husband is a retired um, UC Berkeley professor, um, but I'll I'll forward the information to you since you haven't heard. I don't, I don't no, have I don't, I don't have his name like in my mind, but yeah, but yeah, he's a constituent, and uh, now he's her husband. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, you know, he has, he has yeah, but he has a, a you know pretty full you know resume and life you know as well. So yeah, so it you know it looks it's really great you know when someone can find happiness you know. I was just going to say that to find happiness at any stage of life is so fantastic. Really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, tell us a little bit more about about the program because I know you usually um, you show these wonderful clips. We actually bring Dr. King into the room. <laughs> yes. So you know, I am very proud of this program. We've worked very hard to represent an event that ties in a lot of elements and tries to inspire the community on multiple levels simultaneously. So we have, as we already mentioned, all this outstanding music that's going to be directly infused by uh, some themes and some messaging that are all about the wonderful teachings of Dr. King. Uh, But also, as you mentioned, interspersed between the acts, we have archival clips of Dr. King reciting some of his famous speeches. So when you have that huge screen come down and his image comes on the screen and you listen to his words directly from his own mouth, 
it just reminds us, exposes us, and uh, really puts us in the right mind to listen and to think about what he was trying to do and, and the fervor in which he was presenting his messages to the public. So it's such a wonderful opportunity to be able to do that during an event like this. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's always really great to, to hear, like, you know, we're we're honoring him, but then to have his voice and his presence um, there, you know, on the screen, it's like it makes it have a much more tangible uh, feel to, to the program. Like, oh, Dr. Keating is, is here, too. Like, whoa, this is so cool. Yeah, he's in the house. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. and I also feel uh, as the years go by, because as you mentioned right up front, this is the 18th year we're doing this, so time is going on. And mm-hmm. those of us who have been coming to this show, we're going on also, meaning we're getting older. And I feel that it continues to be uh, an important responsibility to expose Dr. King to our younger people, to our children. Uh, and to those who don't remember him as directly as some of us might. So mm-hmm. having the second and third graders, for example, on the stage uh, and teaching them music, which we do in the schools, we're not just providing a music education program, but tied into that, we're teaching children music where the lyrics are directly about Dr. King, they're about important civil rights leaders. So while they are singing and learning about music music fundamentals, they are simultaneously learning history uh, and being able to discuss why Dr. King was important, what kind of values he represented, what they might want to integrate in their own lives. Uh, they are also singing about those same things. And then, of course, they're at the show, so they're seeing this footage and learning, you know. So I I always hope that people who are coming to the show really think about bringing their children, bringing their grandchildren. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is a multi-generational event, and we do want to keep Dr. King's message alive, not just for those of us who are, you know, as I mentioned, older, because, you know, we remember the most, of course. Um, but to keep passing how this down, and, and I think it's even more relevant today, as we know with our politics right now, that it's very important to keep certain values um, going forward so that our young people can in turn feel inspired to become leaders, to become humanitarians, and to stand up for what they believe is right. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's so true. It's so true. And I was just thinking, you know, um, your program is always the day before, um, you know, um, the holiday, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, day. And uh, and this year it's, you know, January 20th, 2020. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about about Living Jazz and um, and all of these fabulous programs that Living Jazz um, uh, sort of facilitates. Um, like you know, I think it started at Jazz Camp West, and you've got Jazz Search West, and 
you know, you've got the Living Jazz Children's Project. And I was wondering, um, who is the teacher now for the uh, Living Jazz Children's Project? Yes, so I'd love to tell you all about the organization. Uh, The teacher, teachers, I would say right now, uh, Mm -hmm. this program is a full-year music education and performance program for second and third graders. This is the Mm -hmm. 18th year we've been providing free music education to Title I Oakland Public Elementary Schools. And Terrence Kelly and Brian Dyer are the two choral um, teaching artists that are in the schools for us, mm-hmm. uh, and they are accompanied by Ben Hevero and a man named Brian Seat, who are fantastic piano players. They are the accompanist for the choral component. So the, the program is a two-pronged program. The first half of the year is choral, and the second half of the year is rhythm. So the rhythm program is led by two outstanding Bay Area percussionists, Javier Navarrete and Dave Flores. Um, And to just get into it a little bit more, the reason that we're doing half a year choral and half a year rhythm uh, is that in the Berkeley Unified Schools, starting in fourth grade, the district comes in and provides some band orchestra. Because as we know, the music education and PE, by the way, dropped out of our schools uh, almost 20 years ago. And Mm -hmm. many nonprofits like myself were looking to see how we could begin to fill the gap in um, these missing critical elements of our child's development. I wanted to do second and third graders because I felt that if the district was going to come in and provide some band orchestra, we wanted the children to want to participate in that, and we wanted to give them a leg up. So by the time they hit fourth grade, they've already had some exposure. They've been inspired to uh, want to be involved in music. They had some rhythm, timing, um, basic elements under their belt so that if they did choose an instrument, they would excel a little more on that instrument and have a chance to have some foundation. Uh, And we had met quite a bit with the music teachers of that band orchestra, and they did, in fact, say, yes, we really need a strong foundation for these kids that will give them the opportunity to uh, do a little bit better by the time they hit fourth grade and have the chance to select whether they want to be a part of Uh, band orchestra or they want to sing or they want to dance or whatever they want to do so the first half of the year is choral simply because they don't need instruments everybody can participate no matter who you are all you got to do is open your mouth and sing Um, they are learning wonderful um, elements of music fundamentals and as I said along with that while they are learning all sorts of things about music they are simultaneously being taught elements of how music was a vehicle for social cultural change. They're learning about civil rights leaders. um, And there is always that element that living jazz wants to provide, which is not just teaching music, but using music as a vehicle for change and having certain ethics uh, because we believe in transformation for people, not just um, teaching music. 
The second half of the year is rhythm. They're learning complex polyrhythm from the African diaspora. So they're learning rhythms from Africa, Puerto Rico, Cuba, uh, and, and again, simultaneously understanding where in our world were those countries, why were those rhythms created, what did they, what was the relevance behind them historically, how these instruments were made that they're getting exposed to, conga drums, go-go bells, maracas, sticks, and why were they relevant. So there's history, there's culture, there's cultural pride being infused while they are um, learning uh, these various elements of, of music. So we're really proud of that program. And um, as I mentioned, we provide it completely free of charge. We rely on support from our uh, community through funding to make sure that we can go in and, and give this free opportunity to our low-income schools. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and and some of the other um, programs through Living Jazz. And it's really interesting if you could tell us, you know, how you started, you know, doing all of this because um, I think it started when you were at um, – uh, at at a jazz camp, right? Because you like to sing, right? And yeah, yeah and so, you um and yeah. you know you're also a therapist, right? So you're a therapist, and yes, you am. run this program that's bringing music to Oakland public school children and celebrating the life of one of our heroes, and and then having a vehicle for people who are artists to be able to, um, you know, sort of get some uh wider recognition, you know, through the uh uh the jazz search. And it's all really friendly and um and and you know, sort of it's it's not so, you know, sort of cutthroat like what we see on T V. Um <laughs> you know, everybody kinda wins you know, because, you know, they're they're artists and, and they're enjoying the work and the audiences enjoy them whether they win or not. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, let me give you a little background on the whole history of all of this. Uh, I've been the executive director of Living Jazz for 36 years, uh, and so that's a long time, right? And I got involved because, as you mentioned, I was a singer, a dancer. I was also a fine artist. Uh, I was always involved in the arts growing up. And when I was in my 20s and I had moved to the Bay Area from the East Coast, just coincidentally, somebody told me about this camp in the summer that I might be interested in attending, and I decided to do it. It was a jazz camp. It had been run by Casadero Music Camps, who always ran a series of children's camps throughout the summer, but they had this one adult week at the end of the summer. So I went to the adult week, and I had never been exposed to jazz, really. Um, it just blew my mind. I never uh, had been exposed to gospel, the blues, all different elements of jazz. Um, and there were people there that really were at the beginning stages of their careers. Bobby McFerrin, Huck and Patty, Andy Norell, uh, the list goes on. Ed Kelly, Terrence Kelly's dad was alive at the time. Uh, absolutely stunning artists and performers who were not yet famous. Uh, and I found myself just serendipitously 
being in the middle of this experience, and it really changed my life. It literally changed my life. And one thing led to another. Two years later, I had attended the camp twice. The organization that was running it was faltering, and they decided not to do that adult program anymore. And one thing led to another. I got together with a few people. We decided to try to save it. And in 1984, we produced Jazz Camp West for the first time under our auspices, went on to form a nonprofit the following year, and just went on to begin to produce many programs for the Bay Area, uh, including um, after we got Jazz Camp on solid footing, we went on to create the Oakland Interface Gospel Choir, the Oakland Jazz Choir. We were the first organization to provide jazz education in a group format. This was long before the Jazz Conservatory uh, had been created by Susan Muscarella. We were doing jazz education at Laney and at Mills College. Uh, we, as we mentioned, started providing free music education for low-income public elementary schools. Uh, I created a youth camp called Jam Camp West that was fashioned after the adult program that is now in its, uh, I believe, 13 years. I, I lose track of our youth camp. It's for 10 to 15-year-olds. We're very proud of that. Uh, we also created something called Jazz Search West, which you mentioned, which is a Bay Area annual jazz talent search where we showcase emerging talent, provide opportunities for them and exposure, and, of course, expose our community to amazing new talent. Um, and we created the annual Martin Luther King tribute 18 years ago. Uh, and then the, the thing that we designed most recently is called the Not-So-Tiny House Concert Series, where we began oh, to provide um, house concerts uh, in private residences. Mm -hmm. So we do other events as well. We do fundraisers, and we have an incredible gala once a year called Jazz at the Mansion. So we're out there making a difference. Um, I would say we've really made a huge, huge impact in the Bay Area over the last 35 years through the programs that we've designed and by providing opportunities for thousands and thousands of people in the Bay Area, not just to study music, but to be exposed to amazing talent, to provide employment for fantastic uh, artists, to um, really make a difference socially, I would say, as well, for people to find like-minded people who enjoy music. And, you know, when you've attended one of our camps, for example, and then throughout the year you start attending concerts, you always see your friends there. So it becomes very much a community that um, builds on itself. And uh, we're just really honored to do the work that we've done and, you know, recognize the influence it's had. So it just, it's the, it's the organization that keeps on giving. <laughs> right. Wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, could you give our audience um, the website for uh, Living Jazz? And um, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's livingjazz.org, and we really want to see everybody out next Sunday to our Martin Luther King tribute. If you go on livingjazz.org, you will find a button to push that will get you right to where you can buy tickets for the event. 
uh, and we're really hoping our community comes out to celebrate Dr. King with us, to listen to this outstanding music by fabulous artists, to be exposed to this, the program that we're doing in the public schools, to hear our second and third graders singing their hearts out in commemoration of Dr. King, and, and really to be a part of a collective experience where we can come together and be inspired in these difficult times and to be reminded of how important it is to remember the values that we want to represent and to stand for and to feel motivated and joyous because we're living in a time period where, it, it, you know, it's scary and it doesn't always feel so positive. And it's important for us to be together and to remind each other what's good and how to be inspired through, um, you know, through what, through what we really do believe in. Mm-hmm. Right, definitely. Well, congratulations on 18 years. Wow, that is amazing. That's really amazing. Thank you, That's so great. Yeah, yeah, and I hope things are 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 better for your family. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you next next Sunday. I know I will see you there, and I hope you see all your listeners there. So we're just looking mm-hmm. to uh, forward to a great evening. Yeah, it's just it's just such a the uh, the program is just makes you feel so warm inside. It's just uh, it's it's a highlight. It's sort of like what do we want to do to start the year? You know, in the right. name of love, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. it gets us off on a really good foot. So definitely, um, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And thank you for for continuing. You know this work. Um, yeah. You're welcome. And, and your team. Uh, I never. <laughs> uninspired, you know, I've been carrying a torch for a very long time and it just feels really right and mm-hmm. good and um I'm just so grateful to be able to to do this work. Right, yeah. And I appreciate and, and do you, you know, for letting me uh, talk about it. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um well, um Maestro Morgan is is joining me now and I was wondering you all have to know each other, right? Yes. Well, we do know each other, okay. but maybe not as well as we might. Uh, oh, well, do you want to say hi? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I know. I'm Daisy always, Hoffman, uh, Living Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm always so excited to know what the Oakland Symphony is up to next and um, how we share our artists from time to time, such as the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir and Terrence and Ellen Hoffman, who, you know, is always out there arranging music. And, you know, the community in some ways is very small and yeah. miraculous. And, and Tiffany and, Austin. And, um, just saw her. You know, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's Tiffany Austin, yeah. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's yeah, certainly she's really a something. experience. Mm-hmm. Tiffany yeah. is And then Ruthie. What a and Ruthie goes back to um, uh, Oaktown Oak Jazz. Jazz Workshop when she, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, for those of us um, who have been doing this work for a very long time and watching these new artists come up through uh, institu- institutional uh, organizations such as the Oakland Symphony or uh, you know, Khalil through the Oaktown Jazz Workshops and myself through Living Jazz and, of course, Terrence now through the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. I mean, these are 
long-term institutions that people rely on and the artists are, uh, you know, out there in the community perform for all of us because they are exceptional talent and they should cross over into various um, types of genres and audiences. So it's always exciting to see what you're up to, Maestro Morgan. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stacey. And um, uh, we're going to be talking about the Oakland Symphony Presents a celebration uh, of Bernard Tyson and his playlist um, next Friday, uh, uh, January 24th. Yeah. Actually, not next right. Friday, the Friday after. Yeah. Yeah, two Fridays. Two Fridays from now. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing you um, at uh, at the uh, In the Name of Love. And, again, thank you so much, Stacy, for joining us. Thank you so much, Wanda. Take care. You too. Bye bye. <laughs> ah, Maestro Morgan, how are you? Fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. It was so great seeing you um, at the Oakland Ballet um, Nutcracker there. Oh, sure. You know, in the pit. <laughs> you know, with with the orchestra. It's like, oh, this is so cool. You're so close. Like normally, you're like further up on the stage. Yes. But, but you were like close enough for us to be able to say, Hey <laughs> That was really, really nice. So so talk to us about about the Oakland Symphony playlist. Um you know, um you know, the first playlist, you know, was in two thousand eighteen and that was curated Kamal by Bell. uh Kamal Bell and then the next year the playlist two thousand nineteen was uh Dolores Huerta um, you know, a Mexican American superhero woman, <laughs> civil rights yes. activist. Yeah, yeah. And and then, you know, um and then we have um, you know, we're looking forward to and we are still looking forward to Bernard Tyson and his playlist, but he won't be with us, you know, in the physical sense because um, you know, he had his he made his transition. Um, surprisingly, um uh last year. Um, yeah, so I want to talk to you about, tell our audience a little bit about the whole notion of the playlist, and then I'll, I'll read your bio. Where did that idea well, come the, from? You're just so full of good ideas. <laughs> uh, it's an idea, I'd, I had something I'd wanted to do for several years. Um, in, in-house, we called it sort of the Great Minds series, because we wanted oh. to get really, I wanted to get really interesting people to come in and program a concert for the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years ago, the Wallace Foundation made it possible for us to try it with through one of their grants. And now we've continued it. Um, and this will be, as you said, the third one uh, with, uh, with Bernard's list. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to show, the idea is to show the, uh, someone who's not in the music business at all, how important music is in fact to them. And everything we do is kind of aimed at the next generation. And so we, we want to especially show young people that mu- music is important to people they might not think it was important to. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the uh, um, because um, um, you know Bernard Tyson's not with us. Um, this particular um, playlist concert is going to be. Um, it's going to have a different kind of um, flavor and. Um, and uh 
presentation. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit of, of sort of the plan and, and who um, some of the artists are that are going to be performing uh, some of this work that um, that Bernard Tyson and you he and you and he you know spoke about his playlist and so you know we actually yes, have we were, it. we were actually <laughs> we were we were. We were actually emailing right up, and we were emailing the day before he died. We were still working on this oh. list, so it was not it was not wow. it was not complete even then. We were working right up to the end, and um, uh-huh. so what hap- what normally happens in play- playlists, of course, is that the person is on stage to tell us why they chose the music they chose. Uh, since mm-hmm. he's not there, we're having various people, including the the, <clears throat> for example, the acting CEO of Kaiser. And uh, and his widow Denise Tyson uh, will, mm-hmm. will be there to speak, and we'll have various people speak in between about him. Uh, Barbara Lee is, I think, sending a, a video tribute, mm-hmm. and so uh, it'll be, it'll still be about him. It'll still be mostly his playlist. We've added a couple of things in his honor, so it's not entirely his playlist. Usually, it's entirely the choice of the person that's on the stage, but the but. Uh, I was saying to someone the other day that we we were looking for something heroic to play at the end, and we decided that the, we want we decided to play the theme from Superman of John Williams <laughs> for the last piece. Nice. And the mm-hmm. and and I was saying that that you know that that nobody who actually deserves it would put the theme from Superman on their own playlist. So <laughs> we had to add that <laughs> in his in his honor. <laughs> That's great. That's so, really yeah. great. So yes. It'll be the orchestra. Um, uh, I, I wish more things on the concert were full orchestra, but we, we had a time crunch in terms of getting orchestrations done. Uh, so we have things, there are things with orchestra, there are things with the Jazz Mafia, our usual collaborators, um, mm-hmm. Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, again, usual collaborators for us. There's a contingent from the chorus that's doing uh, a Moses Hogan spiritual. That's, again, one of those things we've added in his honor. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and vocal rush from uh, from Oakland School of the Arts will be there also. So it's uh, mm-hmm. kind of a, it's a, it's a lot of our break bread family because his list was was heavily um, was heavily R and B and gospel, and so it made mm-hmm. sense to pull together some of our usual uh, our usual folks. And some things, as I say, will be done with the orchestra. Some things will be done just jazz mafia. Some things will be jazz mafia and the orchestra. And these various choruses are doing things. And so, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a pretty wide variety of people. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. I was I was looking at at the selection, and um, you know, we've got uh, miracles um, uh, from the album "Losing My Religion," Kirk Franklin, and and as you mentioned, um, uh, Moses Hogan. Um, did you say that that was one that you added? Yes, I'm I added. I'm sing till the spirit added, moves my heart. Moves well, my actually, heart. yes, actually, our chorus master, uh, uh, yes, um, Lynn Monroe, Lynn Morrow, uh, Lynn Morrow, oh. uh, added mm-hmm. added that and pulled together the chorus because they wanted to do something in his honor also. So they nice. they decided to pull that together. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, the end of Superman and the beginning is a piece by George Walker. Uh, George mm-hmm. Walker was the first African-American to win the Pulitzer in music, and he wrote a small piece for strings called uh, Lyric for Strings um, in honor of his grandmother. And the reason I added that was because uh, when I heard, when I got the news about 
Bernard. Uh, I was about to walk on stage at the Memphis Symphony to do a, to do this lyric for strings piece, and so oh. I decided to just bring it to this to this program again in in his mm-hmm. honor because um, nice. it, it's a quiet contemplative piece anyway, so it's it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's perfectly good for this program. Mhm. Oh, that's so beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And and then I noticed, you know, um, there's family affairs, Sly and the Family Stone, We Are One, Maze. He's got a whole lot of really cool, you know, from that period. Um, oh, uh, this of is music. This, this is this is maybe a third of the things that he of the of the list he gave me. I mean, some it was I couldn't oh. possibly do everything that was on his list. Oh yeah, Uh-oh. okay. We were because we were we were still boiling it down, as I say, when he when he died. So we we had we <laughs> oh. had a, we had a lot to to work with. Mhm. Oh wow, yeah. You got um, Hezekiah Walker, Every Praise. Um, that's the way love goes. Janet Jackson. Is the dance floor gonna be open? <laughs> <laughs> we don't really have room for the dance floor in 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 the Paramount, although. You know, people have gotten used to from the break break concerts finding a way to kind of dance in their seats. So it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it will that will happen at this yeah. show also. Right, you got James Brown, Papa Don't Take No Mess. Oh my goodness! And then um, the theme from The Godfather after the intermission. Like, hmm. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the order I haven't settled on yet because I'm because I'm still waiting to hear about oh. speakers and mm-hmm. and whose speakers are going to be in between, and um, mm-hmm. also some of the I'm just trying to scatter around when the when the orchestra is heard. So I'm put so I'm going to reorder all of this. So you you'll mm-hmm. get an insert about what the final final program order is. Okay. Okay. Cool. That's so cool. So what did make it? Um, because there was too much. Oh, there was stuff uh, from Tupac. There was other stuff from. Oh. Uh, uh, I don't have the, I don't have his whole list in in front of me. But there was a, a, a lot of other R and B, and sometimes multiple things by 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 some of these artists. And so I, I really thought this should just be one thing from a given artist. Uh, okay. So it was it was just if you took this list and just sort of blew it up and added things you would expect to be on a list like this, they they were they were all there. He had a very <laughs> His uh, his his iPod or whatever it was he played music on had just hundreds of songs on it, so he mm-hmm. there was a lot from the music was very was very important to him. You know, I actually he, his name was suggested to me because I, I didn't know him very well. I met him, in fact, well I met I, I I'd met him a couple of times at Oakland and and San Francisco Pride parades, but I had not seen him other than leading the leading the Kaiser contingent. So I had not seen him other than oh, that. Okay. And mm-hmm. it was uh, Lynette McElhaney from the city council oh, who, yes. who suggested, you know, you should ask him to do one because she knew about this, this how important music was to him. Mm-hmm. And so it was that really I give her credit. It was her idea to have Bernard Tyson do a playlist. Oh, wow. Wow, what a nice connection. Yeah, yeah. So talk, talk about, you know, just sort of um, – uh, the man and and just sort of getting to know him through the music because you know you learn a lot about a person through through the art and through what inspires and that is in him. fact the, that is in fact the idea behind this series is to learn more about the person through the music that inspires him and what I am told by 
Kaiser employees is that pretty much whenever he gave a talk on whatever the subject was, he would use he would use a piece of music to illustrate whatever his topic was. So mm. music was always integrated into whatever else he was whatever else he was talking about. So you notice in there are very few. I mean, the Godfather and Ramsey Lewis trees, but other than that, there are not a lot of instrumentals on this list. Mm-hmm. It's for the most part things that have have words, and the and it's really uh, work texts and what the songs are about that I think is what sort of attracted him to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and yeah. so that was that, that was his that you know and and he. Uh, one, one thing I definitely knew that it was that he was living uh, uh, actually a very exciting life, but also very, you know, extremely busy and extremely uh, a lot of very peripatetic, very a lot of traveling. Uh, I think the first time I met with him in his office at Kaiser, uh, that he was telling me that the, the the he was sort of getting done for the day because the next day he was going off to spend uh, an evening with uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce, who are, of course, friends of his. And he apparently just... <laughs> really? He just went... <laughs> yeah, he just rolled in those circles all the time. So mm. every, every, every he knew everybody. But, you know, I mean, uh, being CEO of Kaiser, Kaiser's a huge organization anyway. But, mm-hmm. I mean, that would make someone fairly famous anyhow, but um, you know, African American CEO of a of a company that enormous, uh, so rare that uh, of course everybody, you know, knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was this too was interesting. It was just interesting to me to find out he also cared about music. I did not yeah. know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, and and also what's so cool is that you know he was an Oaklander, like. This is his town. Oh, he was really Oakland centric, which is why you know Kaiser was building its <laughs> new building down across from the Paramount, and uh, he was very excited about things in Oakland. And also, I think uh, really important is how he was trying to look out for the people and the health of of Oakland, um, mm-hmm. and especially African American Oakland, because we have our our. our special and specific health issues also and so he uh he was uh, very cognizant of that and i mean he he himself uh dying suddenly at his age i mean he's two years two years younger than i am and uh mm-hmm. i don't really i mean i'm not young but i'm not really old <laughs> um, right that's true <laughs> so it was a, that came as came as such a came that's why it came as just such a surprise to me that uh the, uh, the, his 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 passing, but uh, he knew as well as anybody about the uh, specific the issue, the health issues specific to black men, which are the, the, which they really are specific to black to black men, and he was you know addressing them as he could. Uh, so I I just had tremendous admiration for him, and just as a as a member and servant of the community he was just uh, there's just there's just none like him mm-hmm. right that's so true yeah and um you know you were um 
born in Washington, D.C., where you attended public schools and began conducting at the age of 12. Sounds like you were a protege. Um, while a student at Oberlin College Conservatory of Music, you spent the summer at the Berkshire Music Center at Tanglewood studying with Gunther Schiller. Gunther and, Schiller and uh, Leonard Bernstein. Oh, seriously? And oh, that's not, and yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, so yeah, I guess your course was set, huh, early on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I never, <laughs> occasionally, you know, as I uh, travel the streets of wherever around here mm-hmm. where people recognize me, uh, people who haven't seen <laughs> me in a while, will, they will ask me, you know, are you still conducting? And I'm like, I can't do anything else. So, of course, that's what I'm still doing. <laughs> I don't have any other skills, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Your, your operatic debut was in 1982 at the Vienna State Opera, conducting Mozart's The Abduction from the uh, Seraglio. Geraldio. And in 1986, uh, Sir George um, Solti chose you to become the assistant conductor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, a position you held for seven years under both Solti and Daniel Barenboim. Yes. Is that how you pronounce That's it? That's right. Okay. And, and Yes, and that was, mm-hmm. that, I was there just before I came here. That was, in oh, fact, okay. for a couple of years, I, for a couple of years they overlapped. For a couple of years I was here and Chicago. And mm-hmm. then I, then yeah. I, Decamped to here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yes. And you, uh, and everyone still, that mm-hmm. and everyone oh, that cares about follow, following me should know that later on this year in April oh. I'm actually doing mm-hmm. a week of concerts with the San Francisco Symphony. So that you will, are. That's oh. I am indeed. San Francisco okay. Symphony to their to their credit is really they're really. Uh, stepping up their whole mm-hmm. looking, you know, community engagement, diversity, all those things. They're really addressing them, and I give I give organizations credit for doing that because, um, you know, we all think it's uh, that it's essential, but when you get right down to it, the very biggest organizations do not have to do this for the most part. I mean, the mm-hmm. the you know the black we're having trouble holding on to our black population in Oakland and so the black population in San Francisco is is getting very small uh but yet they want to engage uh what there is of it so i give them i give them credit for that nice nice yeah oh wow so um what's the program that you are going to be uh, conducting interestingly enough the first half of it is uh, is african american composers which i would Venture to say has not happened there before. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, a young man by the name of Carlos Simon, who is really what the, about the hottest thing in young uh, African American con- composers at the, uh, coming along right now. He has a piece mm-hmm. called "Amen," uh, which mm-hmm. is actually, if you can imagine, a Pentecostal church service condensed oh. down to about twelve to fourteen minutes play, mm-hmm. for orchestra. Uh, it's really, wow. it's, it's really pretty high, high energy thing, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Florence Price Third Symphony, which I did here in Oakland a year ago on the uh, two years ago, year ago, two years ago, whichever, on the Notes from the African Diaspora concert, oh, she is getting yeah, such a renaissance. Awesome. Yeah. She's getting such a renaissance, and I decided it's a piece that 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 more people need to hear, and so I'm putting that on that program too. 
And then there are various oh. other things on the program. They let me program a program that let me do my kind of program, so there's a bunch of different stuff on it. <laughs> hmm. Oh, that's going to be great. That's going to be really great. So um, the orchestra in San Francisco and the orchestra in Oakland, is it um, is the size the same or is it different? Um, are there more? The symphony orchestra is about the same, really. The only okay. difference, the difference mm-hmm. between the two is that the orchestras, all, most of the orchestras in the Bay Area are what we call per service. That is, they you 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 they they are paid when they come to do something, whether it's a rehearsal or a mm-hmm. concert. San Francisco uh-huh. Symphony, San Francisco Opera, San Francisco Ballet, these are salaried orchestras, so they are full-time, uh-huh. they are full-time jobs. That's a whole magnitude of difference in terms of the size of the budget and, uh, and just the size of the operation. So that's really the difference mm-hmm. between, between the two. The San Francisco Symphony is playing together all the time, and, right. and we at the Oakland Symphony get to play together when we can. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Which of course, which of course, we always want to play more, but that's up to you know how much support we can get from the community. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I remember um, at the Let Us Break Bread that um, that you all had on these um, uh, red scarves, um, so that oh, people that would was, know yeah, it who they it was fundraising give money night. to. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah because, so I'm uh, sure. <laughs> I don't think very many people realize that in the case of these things like a symphony orchestra or opera company or these or ballet or these big art forms, uh, how little of the cost of putting it on is covered by your ticket. Uh, because otherwise we'd have to charge more. We'd have to, it'd be prohibitive. We had to charge what it actually costs us that, that, to put on a concert. The very people we most want to hear us wouldn't be able to afford to come see us. And so that's mm-hmm. why we are out uh, even though you see a lot of people coming to concerts, a lot of people buying tickets, we're still out raising money to cover the rest of it. So mm-hmm. the the tickets only cover the co- tickets cover maybe a third of what it costs to put on a concert. Right, right. So so um, people can can still you know donate even though they missed um, you know that pitch by going to OaklandSymphony.org. Oh, absolutely. OaklandSymphony.org, and we're more than happy to. Uh, it really, it certainly helps us keep doing all these things we're doing: the playlist series, the notes from series, the, uh, the break bread, all of these things. Uh, it take a, it takes a lot to put them together, and and it takes a lot of support for us to keep to be able to keep doing them. So yes, it, the more people go go there and support us, the the more things we can do. And not to mention our education things, which don't bring in a penny because we are uh, we're out in the schools trying to we specifically aim our education offerings at the schools that could not otherwise afford it. So mm-hmm. our, we 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 have we have a youth orchestra. A youth orchestra is tuition based, but our mm-hmm. muse orchestras, which are elementary and middle school, and all of our programs out in the schools uh, assisting. Oakland Unified School District music teachers, those are all completely mm-hmm. free. And uh, and we do them, you know, the more support we get, the more of those we can do. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what, what year is this for you with regards to your tenure? Um, at I am in Center? year, yes, I am in year 29. Seriously? So, oh, my goodness. Seriously. Wow. 29 it's been 29 years. years. Next, it's 29. It's going to be 30 years next year. 
Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. So were you in your 20s when you came out here? I was in my early, early 30s. <laughs> okay, yeah. Wow, you really, wow, you've given us a lot of your, your um, you know, your oh, life. Yeah. You must really like it here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually do. I, I do the, and the reason is that, that I, I feel like what I want to do is a good match for the Oakland audience. And mm-hmm. I feel like the kind of Oakland, the kind of orchestra that the Oakland Symphony is trying to be, is the kind of o- orchestra Oakland, California needs. Oakland, California does not need an imitation of an orchestra that plays somewhere else. We need an orchestra that's focused on Oakland, Oakland's interests, and and Oakland's schools and Oakland's community. And that's why we play the programs we do that kind of ref- that that reflect Oakland, with a lot of Oakland artists sharing the stage with us, which is also really important to us. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It always feels like I'm home when I, when I come to the Paramount um, to hear um, the Oakland Symphony. And I had known that the East Bay part had dropped off until Marshall told me. Well, like, oh, we, okay. Yeah, we went back to our original <laughs> name. Yeah. Well, you know, the mm-hmm. the old orchestra went bankrupt uh, largely because the oh. old orchestra was trying to be like those other orchestras. And then when it reformed, because when you reform something, you have to change the name. So they added East Bay mm-hmm. to the name. But now we've been here long enough that we can mm-hmm. go back to the original Oakland Symphony name. That's what everybody was calling us anyway. So <laughs> we might as well call right. ourselves that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, it's always so wonderful, wonderful to speak to you. And I'm really looking forward to um, uh, to the um, – uh, Oakland Symphony present a celebration of Bernard Tyson and his playlist, which you're still working on pulling together and figuring out the order uh, on Friday, still are, January yeah. 24th, and at the Paramount Theater. And then, you know, in April, crossing the bay, you know, to see you at, um, you know, um, in San Francisco. Yeah, I'm hoping. I'm I'm hoping that that I can that I can bring enough uh, Oakland people over there with me that it is that whatever concerts I do are disproportionately noisy compared to the <laughs> to the San Francisco Symphony <laughs> audience. So mm-hmm. <laughs> right, come over and right. make some noise, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Maybe we can have you on again, you know, closer to um, uh, the time to talk more about, about the uh, the program over there. Hope, uh, very, we would be very happy to, very happy to. Okay, super. All righty. Well, you take good care and have a wonderful weekend and look forward to um, seeing you in a couple of weeks. And thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to talk about what we're doing. Thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. You take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And I also want to let our audience know that, um, I guess I should have announced this earlier in the show, that um, that we have two pairs of tickets to give away. And all you have to do is um, go online uh, to um, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Wanda's Picks and and blog something so that we, you know, sort of know that you're interested. And, um, yeah, and so the first folks I hear from will get this pair of tickets. And I will see you on the 24th um, at the Oakland uh, Symphony's um, uh, celebration of Bernard Tyson and his playlist Friday, January twenty fourth, eight o'clock. Tickets are twenty five to ninety dollars. 
So it's been a really wonderful, wonderful program, and I'm thinking, um, trying to figure out what am I going to play. Um, I'm thinking about uh, playing an interview with uh, Kathleen uh, Dowdy. Um, she's the director of the film John Lewis, Get in the Way, because John Lewis uh, right now is um, is uh, uh, sort of battling um, uh, uh, fourth stage cancer, and I'm thinking maybe uh, sort of playing this particular interview will be a great way to sort of um, send him some positive energy because he is um, uh, definitely a person who has um, given his life to service um, for our community. And uh, so I'm going to play that. And what else is happening? There are a few things happening this weekend that I need to let you know about um, besides that wonderful play um, that um, that everyone is encouraged to uh, to go to. Um, our earlier guest um, is uh, performing tomorrow at 7 o'clock at the uh, about Emily Dickinson uh, at the Berkeley City Club. Let's see. Um, we've got, uh, what do we have here? Um, there is the, um, gosh, um, let me see what it's called. I am drawing a blank. Um, oh, uh, Fresh. Uh, the Fresh Festival performances um, kick off this weekend, and um, y'all turn uh, Tiva. Uh, it's uh, Friday. Uh, January 10th, Friday, January 17th, and Friday, January 24th at the Joe Good Andex, uh, 401 Alabama Street, number 150 in San Francisco. And so this weekend, uh, Bronte Valise shares their eco-social art praxis through the mediums of the body, prophecy, ink made from guns and mud. That sounds really interesting. And Bronte Valise was a part of the... Um, Performing uh, diaspora at um, at uh, Counterpulse this um, this past season in the in the, you know I think it was it November <laughs> I think it might have been November anyway it just it just happened she was a part he they were a part of that and so um, I know this is going to be really awesome and it's tenth um, uh, and eleventh so uh, it's Saturday, Sunday, uh, at the Joe Good Annex. It's a really nice venue. And uh, Dana E. Uh, Fitchett is also in that program. Um, she or is exploring lineage and individual and collective healing. And I don't know how to pronounce this other artist, LSXDSX, presents work interested in the physio- physiological, environmental, and social political implications of the word pressure uh, by Stephanie Hewitt. Jose Iabad, Jubilee July, and Felix Soul Link Friends. And then week two, um, it's a whole other cast of folks. Um, uh, and week three, uh, the 24th and 25th, is Alternativa, um, the presenting organization. And they're in a new duet, Influenced by the Dark Side of the Moon, the Dark Night of the Soul, and the Song of the Nightingale. Irish artist and director Croy Gon Integrated Dance Company, Tara Brando, in collaboration with Nigerian street dancer Nicholas Nwosu and local superstar 
Brontes Purnell. Oh man, Brontes is awesome. Oh man. So yeah, I don't. The middle middle one looks good too. Um, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But ooh, that looks heck awesome. With a new work based on the festival's theme, Tender Dove Remix will be performed. Peace, as well as a movement love letter, chain letter, and an original dub inspired musical score to accompany it. Ooh, that's gonna be awesome. I gotta figure out how to do that. <laughs> so um, you can go to Fresh festival.org and for tickets and information and um yeah wow this looks really good um wow um the week two which i didn't talk much about is new york dancer jesse zaret performs an idiosyncratic and iconic solo by sarah sheldon mann lux borel dance company from tijuana mexico presents work made in testament to a grand ultimatum Survival versus our own downfall, and that looks yeah the whole it's, wow it looks really good. This is a really really wonderful series, and um, hope to get um, some folks on the air to talk about um, the coming weeks since uh, we're, you're missing. I didn't get a chance to talk about this other one, but tonight and tomorrow don't want to miss it. And see what else is happening this weekend. Hmm, gosh, um, I am drawing a blank. <laughs> Oh, oh well. Um, um, the uh, the film, Just Mercy, uh, is getting all kind of of uh, accolades um, from NAACP nominations. I mean, in all the categories. Uh, and Just Mercy is uh, based on uh, Brian uh, Stevenson's work. Brian Stevenson is the founder of the uh, uh, Equal Justice Institute out of Montgomery, Alabama, and he also is uh, responsible for the the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration. And his book is called Just Mercy, and he's done a whole lot of work with uh, uh, sort of stopping the execution of children and stopping the you know, placing children in solitary confinement and just stopping incarcerating children, period. And he's also worked with, um, you know, having people who were about to be executed in Alabama, um, uh, their their execution stayed, and, um, and in a lot of cases, people um, exonerated. So that's really awesome. So... Um, so anyway, yeah, the film opens today in a lot of places, um, but it's already been open. Um, it's at uh, the um, Jack London Cinema. It's in Emeryville. I think it might be at Grand Lake. Yeah, it is at Grand Lake. I'm not certain if it's in Alameda, and I'm sure it's probably in San Leandro and in San Francisco, so you just look it up. But Just Mercy, and it's been nominated for six NAACP Awards, the Outstanding Writing in a Motion Picture Film by Destin Daniel Creighton and Angela Lantham, Lanham, 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 and uh, and then Outstanding Motion Picture. Um, it's a Warner Brothers picture. Uh, outstanding Actor in a Motion Picture, uh, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, he was the one that was in Jakarta or um, or Eric Killmonger, um, Stevens uh, in. Um, Black Panther, the film, Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture, Jamie Foxx, um, Outstanding Breakthrough Performance in Motion Picture, Rob Morgan, 
and Outstanding Ensemble Cast got all those nominations, so it's pretty phenomenal. And they told me that I can't get an interview. So um, we will keep on pushing that, so maybe that might happen. See if I can see if somebody might know somebody that knows somebody that can get me an interview, and I will definitely broadcast it and let you all know all about it. So, um, yeah, so that is all I can think of right at the moment. I'm sure there's a whole lot happening because, wow, uh, the Bay Area is just such a rich, rich place. And uh, there's some really great films that are um, that are screening at the Roxy. I can't recommend them highly enough. And I mentioned a few of them at the um, on my pick in my in Wanda'spicks.com, so you can look there. And also, um, what did I want to mention? Hmm. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, on February 1st uh, is at the West Oakland Library is the 30th anniversary of uh, a celebration of African American um, poets and their poetry, and so that's one to four. It's a free event, and we're looking for people that are interested in participating. So if you're interested, um, uh, give give the library a call. Uh, the library is located at 1801 Adeline in Oakland, and the phone number is 510-238. Seven three five two two three eight seven three five two five one zero area code, and uh, yeah, love to love to feature uh, folks uh, who are interested. And if you uh, want to just bring some poetry, we have an open mic. Um, if you are an African American poet and you want to share some poetry, it doesn't have to be original poetry. You just have to give folks credit. Alrighty, so. Thanks so much for joining us. And again, uh, I say to the ancestors, who um, uh, 500 plus ancestors, who decided that they were not going to submit to enslavement anymore. It was victory or death. On to New Orleans. Um, yeah, on to New Orleans. And um, and uh, yeah, 1811, January 8th. 9th, 10th, and we are January 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th. Yeah, um, so really you should definitely get a copy of this wonderful book, uh, On to New Orleans, Louisiana's Historic 1811 Slavery Vote, A Brief History and Documents Related to the Rising of Slaves in January 1811 in the Territory of Orleans by Albert Thrasher. And uh, and when you're in the New Orleans area, you should definitely um, uh, participate in um, in a Hidden History LLC tour, uh, and then you could you know sort of see what those spaces what those places look like. And I am just rambling. Let me just stop that. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, maybe I might be at a play. Oh, that's right. Ooh. I'm going to play John Lewis Get in the Way. I've just been talking up all the time. So here's John Lewis Get in the Way, sending positive energy to our, our dear congressman, hoping that um, that he is not suffering and and that, um, you know, that he, um, uh, you know, whatever happens that, you know, um, that um, he, he, he doesn't suffer and is not in, in, in too much pain. And we want to thank him so much for his service to our community. Okay. So you said you just got back from Houston? 
Yes, we were showing the film at the University of Houston, uh, and it was sponsored by the uh, African American Studies program there. And um, what was great about it is that the audience was so informed. They, you know, they're all studying African American history, so they knew all the stories, and their questions were very uh, in depth. Mm. <laughs> and we just went on and on. I think I think it was like a ninety minute Q and A. Wow, longer than the film. Really? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is so awesome. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking about you know the uh, graphic novels March, and I really really love those uh, yeah. about about um, you know uh, the Honorable. Um, Representative um, uh, Lewis, and and just the way I mean, you know, you're just like at his house. You know, the film is just so relaxed. I mean, it's just. I mean, we go to like this barbecue for the community, and he says how he goes home to get charged, and and then he's yeah. like dancing in the street, you know, at a, <laughs> at a gay pride parade with his yeah. pretty pink shirt on, and. <laughs> Wow, and then you know for the the health bill, you know how you have him holding hands with um with the uh, speaker, you know, and yes. Pelosi. That was so sweet. Oh my god. Yeah, goodness. yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, they were asking uh, also last night about uh, you know what the intimacy of the film, and mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of it is is the southernness. Um, I'm oh. from originally from Washington D.C., but grew up in a uh, southern family and there's something about that culture that i think is just uh it's relaxed mm-hmm. <laughs> people make fun of it but it is a much uh, slower paced um you know and and i i think that that really comes across especially in the family reunion where we're you know it's it's uh the black belt of alabama and uh you know there there is um, a, a familiarity and a, a very closely knit community that we were just um, we just couldn't stop shooting at that reunion. It was just so every every place we turned, it was just so rich, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think it it reveals a lot about who he is as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then he he was so young. I mean, when he heard about heard Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio. And then, and then to be able to meet the man, and yes. I mean, he wouldn't have known that that this would be the trajectory, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. wow, wow. Yeah. It's interesting. I I think one of the things that was attractive to me about uh, the congressman's story is mm-hmm. is the very fact that he did start so young, mm-hmm. and that uh, there. I think it was Eleanor Holmes Norton that said there would have been. Um, no movement without the students, and mm-hmm. that they were the energy in a lot of cases behind particularly the confrontational um, events, and that that is something that I think the congressman wants to emphasize today, that it's the, the fire of youth is um, is indispensable when these movements start to, to build. And convincing young people that they do have a voice, that their voice is very important mm-hmm. to be part of these movements, and and that there is a history of um, of youth in these movements. And I think Congressman Lewis really exemplifies that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just love the stories about, 
you know, the chicken congregation. That was so funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anybody that knows the congressman will – the first thing they'll say is, have you heard the chicken story yet? <laughs> and I think at one point we were we were asking – on Capitol Hill, we were asking – each of the congressmen, I think we interviewed like um, nine congresspeople mm. – when they first heard the chicken story, they all knew it. They all knew it. And so they told their version of it. We were going to put a whole sequence together with just <laughs> all the people, how they remembered the chicken story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And and I didn't even know that his mother was still alive. That was beautiful. Well, she, she's, she has passed since then. That was shot in uh, 1990. Oh, so. you've been working on this film that long? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> the big story uh yeah we started shooting in the early 90s uh i was living in atlanta at the time which is how it all kind of got started and uh we shot for a couple of years then couldn't really get the momentum to raise funds and shoot it so we put it away for a while and uh it was yeah, it sat on my closet shelf for uh, about 15 years. <laughs> wow. Kind of, you know, when are we going to get back to that? And finally, I think uh, when many of the civil rights leadership started getting a lot of national press connected with uh, Barack Obama running for president, mm-hmm. uh, and Lewis was started to get a lot of national attention, especially. We started to feel like okay, we should we should finish it, mm-hmm. and um, so we met with the congressman in Washington, and uh, we showed him actually some of the the footage from that reunion, mm-hmm. which at that point was almost 20 years old actually, wow. and he was just oh, a lot of people in those sequences had passed away, and oh. he was just in tears. I mean, it was mm-hmm. very moving, and um, and he said, finish it, mm-hmm. get it done. So that's what we did. <laughs> wow. So you mentioned your team uh, a few times. Who's your team? <laughs> well, it's, it's changed over the years, but the current team that I have is has been fantastic. Um, we have an executive producer, uh, Charles Floyd Johnson, who is um, a, uh, the EP on uh, NCIS. He's a television executive here, but was also a producer on Red Tails, George Lucas's film. Right, yeah, yeah. He's been just amazing. And um, Donna Brown-Guillaume is our consulting producer who has a long track record at HBO uh, and uh, a lot of documentary background. Uh, Lillian Benson was the editor on the film who cut her teeth on the original Eyes on the Prize. Really? One of her early early career um, yeah accomplishments so and she was very uh, everybody was just so enthused about making a film about the congressman Mm -hmm. and um their you know their love and respect for him was was key i think in in bringing the very all the very um sort of the threads of the of the story together we had a terrific uh composer uh, Kamara Cambone, who um, did an amazing job with the music, and uh, and then our DP, our cameraman, um, mm-hmm. Chip Schneer, who was um, did a great job. I mean, it was really a a, a sort of dream team. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I see um, 
Dr. Claiborne Carson, who is who is from our neck of the woods, you know, at Stanford right. University, uh, with the Martin Luther King Jr. papers. I see he's one of your historical consultants. He was fabulous. Uh, he, I think, um, he has that great combination of both being a, a very accomplished historian, but also someone who is understands media mm-hmm. and and uh, can fuse the two. So, uh, you know, it's I've always felt very comfortable. He was a historian on an earlier film I did about uh, a newspaper editor, Ralph McGill, um, from Atlanta, who was mm-hmm. also during the Civil Rights Movement. And uh, Clay can look at a cut and just, his <laughs> notes are just, they just cut through everything. It's like, did you think about this? <laughs> and you go, hmm, and then we talk about that for a few, you know, a little while, and then he said, and then you know, and they're not specific things, but they're just, um, he just, I'm sure he's a fabulous teacher. He just kind of points you in the direction and is confident that you'll figure out how to do it. Um, and uh, yeah, he's a very, val- very valuable consultant. Really relied on him a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you you, you probably you know, already knew his film All Him, the Martin Luther King Jr. and King Martin Luther King in Palestine. You know where you know he took um, these this this choir from here. You know from Cal from I think somewhere in California, but it was um, larger than just California. And then they went to Palestine and produced this play about. Um, what Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. stood for, you know, the Civil Rights Movement, from their perspectives, and uh, it was really, really good. Um, yeah, I yeah. haven't seen that. Oh, you haven't? Okay, yeah, that was t- 2013, but, you know, you were busy raising money. And <laughs> 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 it's <is> your film. <laughs> you know that's true. I have a feeling you have some experience in this field. <laughs> well, no, I've talked to enough directors to know, but I don't know, you might, you might have folks beat with the 1990s. Like wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny because it's not it, it's it's one of the things I think that gives the mm-hmm. film a real grounding because you literally see him aging mm-hmm. um, in the film. I mean, a, a friend who who watched it was really funny. He said I could tell, you know, what time when when the document the interviews were done by how much hair he had. <laughs> It just gets less and less as he gets older. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's just really something, you know, just learning the story about how he ended up, um, you know, running for Congress, you know, against his buddy uh, um, Julian Bond. It's like, wow, that's so interesting. It's, and, um, it's a very well-known story in Atlanta when I was oh, there. Oh, you know, okay. Was, everybody told it. Mm. But I've been surprised. You're right. Since we started showing it around the country, a lot of people had never heard it. No, and we didn't. I didn't know of it. Of course, it's a, <laughs> it's an, yeah, it's just, um, it's not only an amazing story in terms of um, their friendship and, mm. and what happened and also the sort of social and political makeup of Atlanta at the time, um, but for us, I guess it was uh, a very important story to show him, to show the congressman, you know, as someone who did have very um, developed political instincts at that mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. and um, had a, a passion to win. And and I, I don't want to give away what happens 
right. <laughs> for people who haven't seen it. But um, it's it's a side of his personality that uh, we felt was very important to show in the film mm-hmm. and to include. Yeah, yeah, and then and then you know all that archival footage, you know, with him in this because he was getting arrested and beaten, and I mean he was like right there, like in he the was. in the mix, literally. Um, and you're thinking like, whoa! And then he speaks about, um, you know, you know him using him putting his body in. Do you remember what he said exactly? Yeah, put well. Um, or something, you know, paraphrasing. Yeah, it's putting yourself <laughs> in harm's way is yeah, the phrase they use yeah. a lot. And, mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are a few moments when he talks about nonviolence that are so um, on the one hand they're so moving, and then after you think about what he said, you think, I don't know if I could ever do that. Yeah, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. just it's so um, to you know to to see a, a you know three hundred white people with you know clubs running at you you know, mm-hmm. and attacking you and to, instead of running to hold hands and sing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's just, uh, it's an extraordinary um, ability and I'm, I'm not sure, I think it's it's very spiritually rooted for Congressman mm-hmm. Lewis, I'm, in fact, I'm sure it is, mm-hmm. um, but we, you know, those of us who who sort of come at it from the outside and hear these stories feel like, on the one hand, uh, how of course it makes sense in a way that it is true that if you you know if you turn to violence, it's a it's a sort of a spiral downward. It's not it's not something that's easy to stop. Mm-hmm. And revenge is a you know is a is a very um, destructive passion over time and this is nonviolence is a, you know a, a definitely an alternative to that but uh schooling people in it and and teaching them the discipline of it and the philosophy of it and and not just teaching them but but you know becoming uh training them to be disciples of it i think is a, um is is hard because our we've grown up in a culture where it's it's not looked upon as um, I, it looks you know what they, people think that it's not you are not able to survive if you choose to to follow that mm-hmm. uh, nonviolence and I think it's you know it's true we've lost people we've lost many people mm-hmm. uh, but I think that uh, the congressmen and those who are very uh, committed to it feel like it's the only answer and um, certainly I believe Dr. King believed that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he, he definitely sort of embodied the beloved community concept. I mean, he, he walks it mm-hmm. every single day and mm-hmm. and he says, you know, in your film that the vote is precious, that is sacred, is the most powerful tool we have and, um, you know, and you know, we watch him, you know, at the polling place, you know, it's like, well, he's going to like a regular polling place. This is mm-hmm. really cool in the community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Casting his vote, you know, it's like, wow. It was almost a, it was almost a religious experience to mm-hmm. watch that. I yep. think, um, mm-hmm. you know, he he gets all dressed up, you know, and we rode in the car with him to to the um, his polling place and you know followed him and 
of course, everybody knows him. You know, he walks in and it's like the congressman. But he just, you know, he kept his, his head down. Uh, and you could see what he says in the film, that he, he thinks about all the people that he knew who didn't have that opportunity to vote. Mm-hmm. And um, on the day when he casts his ballot, I think that becomes very present in his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, well, the ancestors for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you show us footage, um, you know, in the film of, you know, black people standing in line to register the vote. And, mm-hmm. and this one woman, boy, the policeman's just like pushing her with his stick. I mean, yes, really, um, really pushing her. Who is that? That's Amelia Boynton, who was oh. uh, one of the community leaders for the Selma campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh just uh, a force uh you talk to people who were part of that campaign even today Andrew Young and and CT Vivian were both involved in it and she um she came out of the community so she was respected within the community she wasn't one of the outsiders the so-called outsiders mm-hmm. and um and yeah she was targeted uh, that was sheriff Jim Clark um who sort of collars her and hauls her away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they didn't, you know, they, people put their life on the line mm-hmm. in those in those uh, events, and it was very, it's very moving to see a willingness to, to do that for uh, a cause that you might not actually see accomplished in your own lifetime, but it's something that it's, you know, they, I think she and Congressman Lewis and and everybody in those campaigns felt like this is the time. We've got to try to make it happen now, and you know we've got the you know we've got the the commitment to do it, and you know we're going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people might be familiar with the um, <clears throat> the feature film um, about um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, Ava DuVernay's. Um, Yes, the uh, Selma. Yes, Selma, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and the fiery young man, you know, <laughs> John Lewis. That's right. Yeah, and I so Stephen James was the actor, mm-hmm. uh, and he, he. I thought he really. I mean, he, he. I think he captured Lewis very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we see your film and see the real man, it's like, yeah, he did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so we get a chance to see, you know, Congressman Lewis talking about remembering, you know, um, the march, and and the, and why the march, you know, because this this man had been killed, and okay. and the community wanted to honor his memory. What's what uh what's the name of the man um who was killed? Oh, um, as soon as you ask me, I lost it. I'll have it in a minute. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but he didn't have approval. It was so interesting, you know, the young folks and the older folks, because King wasn't that old, <laughs> but he wasn't no. 26 either. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, the you know, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was, you know, more established, you know, black men and women. But I think mostly I always see just men. Um, and then you've got the young folks, you know, in the, um, in the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with Lewis as its um chairman and um and i i don't think i knew um 
about, you know, sort of the strife around around marching or not marching. Yes. Yeah, I think yes. that's new information for me. And that was in um, Ava DuVernay's film, I, oh. I believe. Well, I don't um, remember it. Oh, yeah. you know, yeah, I do remember. I remember the character now, but... It, it didn't yeah. stay with me. So, so anyway, it's like no information again. <laughs> yeah, but it was. It's some of this back as one of the way ways that we sort of decided which stories to tell in the film mm-hmm. was that we wanted there to be um, a, a kind of shift in Lewis's perspective mm-hmm. as a result of things that happened usually behind the scenes. So, at the March on Washington, of course. It was how his speech was changed mm-hmm. and right. the sort of uh, internal struggle um, among the various civil rights groups of the time about what would be said at that march. Um, and and in the process, of course, I think Congressman Lewis had one a, a very formative lesson in compromise. Mm-hmm which, of course, he's become a master <laughs> since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Selma, of course, it was, yeah, there was a, a break uh, within his own organization, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and um, which later very, I guess it was within the next year, um, he was voted out of his chairmanship mm-hmm. as, Nick, yeah. as a result. Yeah, it's like, wow. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you know, this you know, sort of showing us, reflecting on that period of like, okay, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where's mm-hmm. Where's my place? Because mm-hmm. he says, these this, these are my comrades. These this is my family. That's right. And I That's love right. these folks. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah, it's really, really, um, yeah, it's great. Sort of externalizing his thinking for us, you know, in in the film, so we could see. Um, you know, his connection to um, Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever known of before. Mm-hmm. And and then him talking about, you know, when Johnson signed the uh, the Civil Rights Act, or it was the Voting Rights Act. Which one was it first? It's the Voting Rights Act. So, yeah. yeah, and how King, I think a tear Mm-hmm. That was, you know, that was kind of cool because he was there. You know, I was like, that's nice. Well, and, and I mean, there had been, they had seen that that had been such a long struggle. Oh yeah. And there mm-hmm. had been so many deaths and injuries. I mean, it was. Uh, I think, on the one hand, there, I'm sure, there was some feeling that it could never happen, and and yet, of course, the Selma March uh, was instrumental in sort of pushing it um, into the forefront of uh, President Johnson's agenda mm-hmm. and and he in turn uh, getting the congressional um, approval for it. But it was very, I, I think we can't imagine the, the hardship that went into getting to the point of that bill actually being signed and, and um, it was, you know, I'm sure it was very moving. Of course, it, uh, you know, it was <laughs> made it all the more poignant when in 2013 the Supreme Court basically gutted it mm-hmm. um, with the Shelby County decision. And um, that was a very, when that happened, we were still in production and, you know, we were just, we got the news. And it was like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. We just did this huge story about the passage of the Voting Rights Act now. And, you know, it's, that 50 years later, it's being you know, taken apart, 
Uh, and then when we thought about it, we felt like, you know, this is this is really true to life. This is the way um, democracy works. That you know, you you achieve what seems like an impossible accomplishment. You get this Voting Rights Act passed, and I think Harry Reid said it very well. He said, you know, you have to be careful, you know, and these, these, you, you can't take these things for granted because it's always possible that, you know, things will go back to, way, to the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. And that Shelby County decision is a, just a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then we think about uh, the more recent um, presidential um, <clears throat> election where so many people didn't vote. Um, yes. And it's like such a close, um, uh, close count between you know Clinton and Trump, mm-hmm. and who knows um, what would have happened if everyone would have voted. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I had known that you know after you know the first um, was it, I think there were three three marches right the three Selmas. Marches. There were three. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the one where um, if, you know people were really injured, that particular one, which um, I'm not sure if that was on March 7th or not, um, when he just describes, you know, the sea of blue, and that's the troopers, mm-hmm. and and he said, "Let us kneel and pray." And I was like, "Dang, that was like so wrong." I'm uh, like, you see them like, oh my god, like they can't even leave. Yeah. Disperse, yeah. and it's like no time to disperse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the first time I heard him tell that story, <laughs> it's just, and he and he says it, it's just, it's just very uh, calm. His deliveries are just so calm, and but what he's talking about is just so intensely <laughs> dramatic, and you're just thinking, that's how he did it. He had that calm. He was able to, in the force of that enormous physical threat right in front of him. He could just say, let's kneel and pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whereas most people <laughs> would be running the other, way, the other way. And I think that is really a clue to how he, how deep his commitment to this, this practice of nonviolence is. That mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, he is extraordinarily centered and uh does not get flustered mm-hmm. uh and I think that is you know that enabled a lot of other people he inspired other people to to follow him because of that mhm yeah certainly and um i I don't know I don't think I knew that there were demonstrations afterwards uh, in eighty major cities um, oh yeah it's like wow that that sounds like most of the country. <laughs> yes. Well, the footage was so raw. Um, mm. Remember that was the oh, time yeah. when, mm-hmm. you know, they were still shooting film, and it took overnight to get it processed and, mm-hmm. and on the air. And by the time it, it showed on television, it was, yeah, I mean, it's funny because we see it now. I mean, it still looks horrible, but, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen, we've become so saturated with violence that you know it it doesn't i think we can't imagine how shocking it was to audiences in 1965 mm-hmm. and that to think that that was happening in our country where you know i 
more like, you know, an establishment man, but he, you know, <laughs> he's definitely disruptive. Um and uh, you know, as as a congressman, and 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 you tell the story really well in the film about his decision to um, uh, to be a member of government, you know, to be a leader in the government. Because I think people were actually suggesting that he run for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish you could tell us that story, and um, yeah. Um, because I, I think that's really a, a highlight of, of the film as well. Like, I think it was interesting when um, President Obama was, uh, a, a, like Congressman Lewis, started his career as an activist. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he was running for president, people would ask, well, what, you know, why did you get into politics? And he said he just became so frustrated as an activist that mm-hmm. he couldn't get anything done. And he felt that if he went into politics, he would be more able to make change, and I think that was almost exactly uh, what happened with Congressman Lewis. I think he he had been a, a very, very dedicated activist, but I think ultimately uh, his ambition in, in terms of, of seeing change happen was such that he needed to practice uh, his his work in a in a different arena, and I think he saw politics as that arena. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, it was interesting. We we had of course uh, we had to skip over um, a fair amount of time in the film just because we couldn't tell every story. But <laughs> his first uh, political his first elected position was as a city councilman in Atlanta. Oh okay. Yeah, and he was I think he was there for two terms, maybe a little longer. Mm-hmm. He also served um, under President Jimmy Jimmy Carter, I think, as part of the uh, VISTA campaign, which was the domestic version of the Peace Corps. Um, So he had spent some time in Washington. He'd been um, city councilman in Atlanta, but stepping into the the congressional race was a, a very big step for him, I think. Uh, clearly something he wanted um, and, uh, you know, felt that uh, he he could win. And, um, and you know, it, I think it was interesting when uh, Reverend Vivian talked about how when Congressman Lewis won the seat, the congressional seat that he now has, and he was, he was how fearful he was mm-hmm. that um, Congressman Lewis's integrity – could be uh, a liability for him in Congress. Mm. I oh, just felt like right. it, yeah, that was that great. It so mm-hmm. much about yes. <laughs> how we perceive politicians. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, but uh, Reverend Vivian is not alone. I think a lot of people felt that 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 people perceived him as naive mm-hmm. and um, a, a deeply spiritual person, but someone who would basically get knocked around in, you know, a place as uh, as potentially, um, uh, you know, uh, confrontational, I guess, as as the U.S. Congress and and where people do have very uh, self sort of self preservation is a big <laughs> motivator for a lot of people's actions, and that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, 
juggling and, you know, backstabbing and throwing people under the bus and all kinds of stuff that, that we're very familiar with in the film industry. <laughs> um, but I think uh, when Congressman Lewis first went to Washington as a, as a representative of Atlanta, I think there was some fear that uh, he wouldn't last and that he would sort of get get uh, sort of trampled in the fray. And, of course, that was over 30 years ago, and he is still there. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure that there were some, some hard knocks along the way, but, again, uh, I think he was um, underestimated in terms of his both his uh, commitment to what he was he wanted to do and what he what he wants to have happen uh, as a congressman, and also his uh, the skills that he had learned as an activist, and you know dealing with things like having your speech changed for the march on Washington and having the organization that represents you basically split down the middle and you know throw you out. I mean. He had had uh, experiences that may not have – they weren't in the U.S. Congress. They weren't in Washington. They weren't part of that world, and yet I think they were very, um, very effective in preparing him for what he walked into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want you to talk a little bit about, about his wife and his um, – does he have a son? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then also um, I saw another film um, about Julius Rosenwald and, and the schools that – the Rosenwald schools that um, he um, built in collaboration with um, uh, Booker T. Washington and the community. So these, these Rosenwald schools were in the black community in the South, and uh, Congressman Lewis is in the film, and he talks about – um, you know, going to one of those schools. Yes. Yeah, yes. and I was like, yes. oh. And, yeah. and I think his brother, he talked about his brother as well, um, and he talked about using, you know, the Sears catalogs, um, you know, just like a wish book. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, um, so I, I I don't know. Do you want me to talk about Rosenwald or which what which Yeah, talk about question? Rosenwald first and then we'll okay. we'll go we'll talk about it. So yeah. I I mean I again you may know more about this than I do. I, I didn't realize that the school that the congressman had gone to was one of those schools, but of course he and his siblings when we were at the family reunion mm-hmm. and interviewing them talked quite a bit about going to school. Um and that of course this was Jim Crow South is every school was segregated, um, but that also the the African American schools were uh, gr- vastly inferior, of course, to the white schools. And they talked about having the getting the hand me down books that were all marked up and ripped and torn and whatever. And and um, they were not they walked to school, whereas the um, white kids had buses and. It was, um, I don't know, it was, I think, on the one hand, a a very um, community-building experience because Mm -hmm. it was clear that you belonged to this community and then there was this other, more privileged community over there. But you had your people and you stuck together and if you just sort of followed the rules, you would be okay. 
But then all, at the same time, I think it was just a very humiliating experience to to feel that somehow you didn't rate high enough to get the bus or to get the new books, mm-hmm. you know, or all of the things that that were um, you were basically not uh, given access to. The congressman couldn't have he couldn't get a library card, you know, and mm-hmm. this was a clearly a very bright and imaginative child and his you know access to the outside world was largely through reading and the radio and uh, i think he was just so hungry for that uh, and i think he did find ways to to you know get get access to newspapers and 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 books but it was um it was i think it was always a hurdle and and uh on the other hand i you know i don't know the story about the rosenwald um schools but i know that before rosen julius rosenwald built those schools there was nothing i mean there was really nothing <laughs> and yep. you know so in that sense the fact that they were there was at least a a, a first step forward and mm-hmm. uh, of course led to to much better later Right, yeah, yeah. And you show in, in the film, um, uh, Representative uh, Lewis wanted to be a, a minister, and so he's going to seminary, right, school? That's right. <laughs> and there's, like, so many jokes around him and being a public speaker and singing. and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he takes it all really good humorly, you know, with good humor. It's so funny. But... From what I understand, he did he did finish at seminary. It's just he wasn't able to go to his graduation, right? So yeah, he went to the American Baptist Seminary mm-hmm. in Nashville, and uh, it was we have great stories. We, you know, we did a lot of interviewing around that mm-hmm. of of his years there. Uh, I think it was uh, initially a, just a, a breath of fresh air for him that mm-hmm. here he. He came to a city, Nashville, where um, you know he was. It was an integrated city. It was. Well, I guess I shouldn't say integrated city, but he was exposed to uh, probably more white people than he had ever seen in his life. Mm-hmm. And um, although I think the seminary was Af- largely African American, he was um, able to mix with other colleges. Nashville, of course, has a quite a few uh, colleges. I've I've forgotten how many, but there are quite a few. He was sort of exposed to a lot of the students uh, at other colleges, Fisk and um, uh, what what are the others? Mahari. um, There's there's quite a few there. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the National Sit-Ins, of course, students were coming from all of those schools to be part of that. So, uh, but it, it's interesting. He so he was at the seminary, I believe, when he went on the freedom rides, and as he says in the film, yes, missed his graduation mm-hmm. because he was in jail in Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then I think what happened uh, was that after the freedom rides, mm-hmm. uh, I think Dr. King helped him get a scholarship to Fisk oh. because he finished his degree then at Fisk. Oh so, wow! Okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's really nice. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think we saw um, uh, Mrs. Lewis um, holding uh, her son 
uh, in, I think, when the congressman was getting sworn in or yes. something? Yes. Okay, yeah, but we don't ever see any family thing happening yeah. <laughs> with them. So, you know, there, there, were, there were several issues. First was that we didn't have, <laughs> we only had an hour, and, oh, my God, the guy has such a life. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was like, what are you going to pick? The other thing that happened is that when we went back to resume shooting the film in um, 2011, mm-hmm. um, Lillian Lewis was uh, ill and bedridden and oh. not really able to be interviewed, mm-hmm. and um, and there were there were issues around that as well that we just um, we sort of felt that it was a, a private mm-hmm. um, sort of situation and that um, we had been able to film the family reunion, so we felt like we did show at least a part of his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a little, I, I'm disappointed that we couldn't include her because for many of the people whom we interviewed around the uh, Julian Bond, John Lewis campaign, mm-hmm. we learned that she had been very, very involved in uh, both persuading him to go for the congressional seat and then campaigning with him and that she had been not only enormously supportive but also very involved in his campaigning for um, to go to Washington. Mm-hmm. So we had wanted to be able to to tell that whole story and um, but it was you know it just it was like a lot of other people talking about her but her voice wasn't there mm-hmm. so it made it. But the timing was, you know, this was a consideration that you wanted it to air around his birthday? Well, no, actually, it was. Well, PBS wanted it to be part of Black History Month. Okay. And <laughs> then it was just a question of, you know, what are the dates that we can get common carriage? We wanted, of course, the film to show nationally.